Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy, and we are here for the fourth quarter, the final book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. You guys have been waiting for it all year, all season. It is time to start the final installment of this arc. I'm very excited to get into it, and I know Chase and I were kind of talking about this. You know how we read certain parts of chapters, and then we take notes on it. I was even telling him, when we was going through this, I was like, bro, like, I wanted to just read ahead to read it. Like, there was nothing boring about any part of this book at all. It was really exciting just from the very beginning. It's just nonstop action and then detail. It's it's very, very well done uh, so far here. So to kind of go and put into perspective a little bit, we decided to actually have a full outline of how we're going to put uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows together in terms of chapters and such. We're going to have... 10 episodes. Uh, we're going to go ahead and break it into two different parts, two talking about, the, because as you guys see here on the visuals, and we'll talk about that in a second, we've got Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, the movie, and then eventually it's going to go Part 2, the movie. So we're going to kind of kind of split it up where we'll do differences between the movie and uh, book for that Part 1, then we'll go ahead and get back into the book and do the same for the end. So you guys are going to receive 10 full episodes from us regarding Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. So it's going to be a fun ride. We've got a lot ahead of us, but we have finally entered the fourth quarter. So with that being said, uh, I do want to talk about the visuals that you guys are seeing because they're, they're starting to, you're, you're kind of getting what you're going to see for now until the end of this arc, right? So for me on my end, as you guys see here, I've got the novel, I've got the film part one, and I've got, for the little foreshadow of what we're going to get into today, I've got Harry and Mad-Eye Moody here as my Funko Pops. And it's going to be interesting because we're kind of getting to that point where what you see on my screen is kind of going to be what you see through the end after today. So <laughs> with that being said, I'll, I'll turn it over to Chase, let him tell you a little bit about what he's got on his end, what he thought about reading the book so far up into the chapters that we're going to tackle today. Uh, for today, we're only going to do chapters 1 through chapter 5. And then next week we'll tackle chapter 6 or chapter 11. And it's going to go kind of intermingled chapters. There's not a specific, like, we're only doing 6, 6, 6 all the way through. No, it's going to be a little bit different. Making sure that we're ending on high notes, picking up on high notes, and just making a really good experience all around for this last novel. So without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce Chase so he can go ahead and tell you about what he's got going on over there. And uh, we'll get into it after that. Fourth quarter, my man. This is it. Uh you know, forever and always is what they always say with that hashtag, with uh, that triangle that plays a big role <laughs> that we talk about in this book. But we're finally at, you know, we're we're almost at that very top of the mountain now. <laughs> like we are almost right at the top of the mountain. And uh, like we said a couple weeks ago, you know, people have been waiting for this one. Like people thought they were waiting for Game of Thrones for a long time. This is you know this has been suggested to us since before we even started the show and like we're here now and uh it, what a ride it is that's for sure and and just like you said this book like these books are so good <laughs> like they don't stop like i've honestly like the harry potter book series in general there's never really a bad moment in the harry potter book series there's never really a bad moment at all even deathly hallows like i we ended on such a high note uh last book i was like you know it's probably going to start off a little slow and then pick up and no it's action-packed from the beginning with everything is a, a vital important detail 
Um, not a lot of fluff in this book at all. Um, as far as visuals on my end, you know, Jane Nelly hit it right on the head. Like, uh, we are getting to the point, you know, it's going to be less and less. <laughs> less and less because there's only so many that make it out. Like, this is it. Where this is, the end is near. We are entering the end right now. Um, and on my end, you know, I always, I'm a big... I like uh, the originals with the British artwork, which is really cool. So shout out to the people that did the British art. I think it's really cool. Um, and then on the left, you know, I was a big collector of the deluxe edition books. So um, we have this big dragon on the cover of this book on the left. We won't give anything away. But if you see a big dragon, there is a reason for it. <laughs> so we'll talk about that at some point uh, in the middle, of course. We have our uh, favorite golden trio right here um, on the British version that's in this big room with gold, <laughs> which uh, plays another big role, another big important moment that we won't get into. And then on the right here, um, of course, we have Harry that is, you know, in the American version. This is really the version that the American versions are the ones that are really sentimental to me because they're the ones I actually read as I was growing up as a kid. Like I still remember, it still has page marks where I would like take this to the pool in the summertime. And uh, you know, it's, it's just the ride is great. Also, I found it funny, like remember how in the films, they all had the long hair for like Goblet of Fire, <laughs> but yet in the books, like they all have long hair for this one. So I, it's just funny how like the styles change. You would have thought they would have kind of switched it up. Cause like in the film, they all have short hair, but yeah, they all had super long hair and Goblet of Fire. But yeah, I got, uh, you know, Voldemort and Snape. You know, we found out so much information on Snape last time. Lupin actually plays a good bit of a role in this book, actually. So he's up there. Uh, you know, I got my favorite person, uh, Hermione Granger, right here. And then the chosen ones next to them. And then uh, hopefully the boy that starts to get his act together a little bit you know, Ronald <laughs> that actually learns to stay, uh, you know, actually went over the ladies in a good way <laughs> versus what we saw last book. And then of course we have Hagrid and uh, I put the Death Eater on the bottom because the Death Eaters definitely um, play a large role in this book and they're not exactly the easiest to take down, which, which really impacts uh, impacts a lot of our characters. <laughs> so, uh, with that, man, yeah, should we get right into it? Is uh, well, what do you think? I think yeah, I think we should get right into it. I mean, to kind of tell everyone what we normally do when we like end one book and start a new one, and honestly, with any sort of episode from week to week, we kind of give a quick recap. And I do know Chase had brought to my attention something he wanted to clarify from the differences episode we did for Half Blood Prince. So I'll let Chase kind of clarify that one thing that he was talking about there. I'll give us a quick little rundown, and then we'll jump right into uh, Chapter 1 and all the crazy detail that that has, and we'll go from there, man. So go ahead and talk to him about uh, that little point in time that you wanted to just clarify, and then we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, so uh, remember in the Differences episode last time, so <laughs> Josh brought it up. Malfoy had that ridiculous comment. Ridiculous. That comment in the film that was like, I'd rather throw myself off the astronomy tower than go to school here. Well, I'll clear this up. Jay Nelly was completely right. And take a shot. Entirely right. <laughs> and um, 
that wasn't in there. What was throwing me off, because I was sitting here thinking, like, maybe Malfoy said something like that at some point. That's just my, you know, trying to give people the benefit of the doubt taking over, because I knew I heard it somewhere. What it actually is, so I don't know if they tried to give Malfoy this line and then also changed it a bit so it really had a different purpose than what it was in the book but on page 422 which is the last page on chapter 19 elf tales so dobby remember he was responding to harry potter and he said and if dobby does it wrong dobby will throw himself off the topmost tower harry potter so and i brought it up in when we were going over that chapter like that was a little bit of foreshadowing but I did want to bring this up. That's what made me think of it. But it was entirely different in the film because that brings up a whole nother point of foreshadowing. And they didn't even have Dobby in the film in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. So why you ever felt the need to say something like that, I have no idea. But just so everyone knows, I wasn't on cloud nine <laughs> when I was thinking of that moment. I knew there was something in the book, but I tried to give them benefit of the doubt with the film unfortunately i couldn't i couldn't save draco malfoy with that line there was just no no justice <laughs> there was no rhyme or reason to have that in there uh and with that yeah you want to give a recap on how we closed out our sixth novel going into you know this is where we are in the climax of the series now yeah absolutely so to kind of give you guys a good, just a quick broad overview of the last couple chapters that we went over uh, last week, we started seeing how like the teachers congregated and started debating if they were going to actually close down Hogwarts as a school entirely. Since like you know they were saying, you guys remember even before that a couple weeks back when we mentioned Snape ended up killing Dumbledore off that astronomy tower, that whole foreshadow that you were just kind of mentioning there. But uh, because of that, they, they, the teachers were like, well, one of our staff members killed the headmaster. Like, maybe we don't open up the school. Like, so they started kind of debating about that. We finally get into Dumbledore's funeral, where we kind of see everybody really pay their final respects to everyone's favorite good guy, right? Like, he was the pinnacle. He was always the, the rock. He was the constant. Dumbledore, as long as you had Dumbledore on your side, you felt like you had a shot. You had a chance. Well, now he's gone, and it kind of throws everyone's world in disarray. And actually, going into this book, we're going to start to learn more about Dumbledore than we ever knew before, and not all of it's good news. That's the crazy part. But regardless, we, in the last book, in terms of a recap, we laid him to rest in the white tomb. The phoenix flew over. You saw the centaurs shoot their arrows over his uh, tomb there and land in the grass. You had some people that we hadn't seen for a while come in, pay their respects. Madame Maxime came over from France. Uh, you had like the ministry brigade there, even though Dolores Umbridge showed up and that pissed Harry off a little bit. Rita Skeeter was there and... You know, there was just some people that uh, shouldn't have been there, but decided to go to kind of save face. Going into the very last chapter, where Harry basically tells Hermione and Ron that I'm not coming back to Hogwarts, whether it opens or reopens. I've got a job to do. There's a reason Dumbledore's not here anymore, and it's even more. It's kind of in vain because, as you guys remember, the locket that they ended up grabbing from the uh, the cave was a fake. Right, and we're actually going to learn a little bit about that next week, in terms about that fake locket. But uh, that's kind of where we left off. We left off with Harry 
Ron and Hermione all deciding that whatever happens, they're going to be sticking together. They're going to go with Harry and hunt down these Horcruxes. We got one more shot at taking Voldemort down. And we're going to kind of see how this all plays out going into this book. So with that being said, Chase, let's get a malice in the chalice. Let's dive into chapter one and, and give the people what they've been waiting for and start on the fourth quarter, my man. Malice in the chalice, man. Good stuff. Cheers, Cheers. brother. Let's take it away, man. Fantastic. This is This is it. This is it. Think of it this way. This is the last time this season we will have a first episode starting a new book yeah you're 100 right you. let that sink in I, this is it you know what it's, it's really going. gonna hit us i think it's really gonna hit us when we end up finishing the book and the last movie like in all of a sudden everything we work towards is just over we're gonna have that like little sinking feeling of like loss and despair like <laughs> you know so right now yeah you're right this is the last time we're gonna start a new novel for not only this book and this arc, but for this season of Factor Fantasy. So this is the beginning of the end of Harry Potter and Factor Fantasy season one. So let's make sure <laughs> that we do it right, my man. And with that being said, we're gonna gonna head start right here on chapter one, which is the Dark Lord Ascending. And there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on in here. I'm gonna go ahead and hit just a couple bullet points before I kind of take you through the rest of the chapter because there's this kind of there's so many things that are important for foreshadows, full circle moments, all in this very first chapter. So I'll start here on page one where uh, Yaxley and Snape, they appear and each of them has news for Voldemort. And we're going to learn what that news is in just a bit. But on page two, we kind of see a similar enchantment to what we saw at the stairs of the Astronomy Tower in Half-Blood Prince where you can only enter if you have the Dark Mark. Because they put their left arms up and they walk right through the little uh, gate that's in front of the house there. Uh, and we've got to actually learn what that house is. It's actually the Malfoy's Manor. And Malfoy Manor is going to play a big role into this going forward too. We've got three quarters of the way through. Malfoy Manor comes up in a big way. So a little foreshadow there. So I'm going to go ahead and read the last paragraph on page two through the first paragraph on page three regarding the scene in which Snape and Yaxley are met with when they actually enter the room. So, the drawing room was full of silent people sitting at a long and ornate table. The room's usual furniture had been pushed carelessly up against the walls. Illumination came from a roaring fire beneath a handsome marble mantelpiece surmounted by a gilded mirror. Snape and Yaxley lingered for a moment on the threshold. As their eyes grew accustomed to the lack of light, they were drawn upward to the strangest feature of the scene, an apparently unconscious human figure hanging upside down over the table, revolving slowly as if suspended by an invisible rope, and reflected in the mirror in the bare polished surface of the table below. None of the people seated underneath the singular sight was looking at it except for a pale young man sitting almost directly below it, and he seemed unable to prevent himself from glancing upward every minute or so. So this is kind of sets the scene. This is what you're looking at right away when you go into this room in Malfoy Manor. Because you guys think about it. Remember, Malfoy, all the Malfoys, they're very rich. They have got a lot of money. That's why it's a manor. They used to have Dobby. It was their house elf. You know, like, the Dobby's masters were the Malfoys. And you can kind of think of like, 
if you ever enter like a really big castle or you know just a mansion in general it's always usually really done really well got crazy paintings of just kind of showing off their wealth but think about what this just said here it said everything was pushed carelessly to the side there was a table in the middle there was someone hanging up above like this is like they don't care about you know appearances in this moment because as we're about to read it's now the dark lord show it's voldemort's show it's not the malfoy show so <laughs> with that being said let me go ahead and, and take it from oh this is actually really important too on page three snape is actually ordered to the seat next to voldemort on his immediate right kind of signifying that voldemort holds snape in such high regard possibly even his favorite death eater and right hand man so, because remember, like, they had Yaxley. He, he goes, like, halfway down the table. He's like, no, you sit there, Severus, you come here, right next to me on my right-hand side. So, it kind of shows you what kind of esteem that Voldemort holds Snape in. And this is awesome because this is a big foreshadow. Like, I don't want to give anything away, man, but this is really, really, that's a really big moment for me. Something that is very easy to read past. But just thinking about where Voldemort had Snape sitting is really important and impressive if you think about it. So... With that being said, I'll go ahead and take it from here to the end of the chapter. So the third to last paragraph. So anyways, the two men took their allotted places. Most of the eyes around the table followed Snape. And it was to him that Voldemort spoke first. So, my lord, the Order of the Phoenix intends to move Harry Potter from his current place of safety on Saturday next at nightfall. The interest around the table sharpened palpably, some stiffened, others fidgeted, all gazing at Snape and Voldemort. Saturday, at nightfall, repeated Voldemort. His red eyes fastened upon Snape's black ones with such intensity that some of the watchers looked away, apparently fearful that they themselves would be scorched by the ferocity of the gaze. Snape, however, looked calmly back black into Voldemort's face, and after a moment or two, Voldemort's lipless mouth curved into something like a smile. Good. Very good. And this information comes from the source we discussed, said Snape. My lord, Yaxley had leaned forward to look down at the table at Voldemort and Snape. All faces now turned to him. My lord, I have heard differently. Yaxley waited, but Voldemort did not speak, so he went on. Dawlish, the Auror, let slip that Potter will not be moved until the 30th, the night before the boy turned 17. Snape was smiling. My source told me that there were plans to lay a false trail. This must be it. No doubt a confundus charm has been placed upon Dawlish. It would not be the first time. He is known to be susceptible. I assure you, my lord, Dawlish seemed quite certain, said Yaxley. If he has been confunded, naturally he is certain, said Snape. I assure you, Yaxley, the Auror Office will play no further part in the protection of Harry Potter. The Order believes that we have infiltrated the Ministry. Well, the Order's got one thing right then, eh? Said a squat man sitting a short distance from Yaxley. He gave a wheezy giggle that echoed here and there along the table. Voldemort did not laugh. His gaze had wandered upward to the body revolving slowly overhead and seemed to be lost in thought. My lord, Yaxley went on, Dawlish believes an entire party of Aurors will be used to transfer the boy. Voldemort held up a large white hand, and Yaxley subsided at once, watching resentfully as Voldemort turned back to Snape. Where are they going to hide the boy next? At the home of one of the Order, said Snape. The place, according to the source, has been given every protection that the Order and Ministry together could provide. I think that there is little chance of taking him once he is there, my lord 
Unless, of course, the Ministry has fallen before next Saturday, which might give us the opportunity to discover and undo enough of the enchantments to break through the rest. Well, Yaxley, Voldemort called down the table, the firelight glinting strangely in his red eyes. Will the Ministry have fallen by next Saturday? Once again, all heads turn, and Yaxley squared his shoulders. My lord, I have good news on that score. I have, with difficulty and great effort, succeeded in placing an imperious curse upon pious thickness. Many of those sitting around Yaxley looked impressed. His neighbor, Dolohov, a man with long, twisted face, clapped him on the back. It's a start, said Voldemort, but thickness is only one man. Scrimmageur must be surrounded by our people before I act. One failed attempt on the minister's life will set me back a long way. Yes, my lord, this is true. But you know, as head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, Thickness has regular contact not only with the minister himself, but also with the heads of all other ministry departments. It will, I think, be easy now that we have such a high-ranking official under our control to subjugate the others, and then they can all work together to bring Scrimmageur down. As long as our friend Thickness is not discovered before he has converted the rest, said Voldemort, at any rate, it remains unlikely that the ministry will be mine before next Saturday. If we cannot touch the boy at his destination, then it must be done while he travels. We are at an advantage there, my lord, said Yaxley, who seemed determined to receive some portion of approval. We now have several people planted within the Department of Magical Transport. If Potter apparates or uses the flute network, we shall know immediately. He will not do either, said Snape. The order is eschewing any form of transport that is controlled or regulated by the Ministry. They, must, they mistrust everything to do with the place. All the better, said Voldemort. He will have to move in the open. Easier to take by far. Again, Voldemort looked up at the slowly revolving body as he went on. I shall attend to the boy in person. There have been too many mistakes where Harry Potter is concerned. Some of them have been my own. That Potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs. The company around the table watched Voldemort apprehensively, each of them by his or her expression afraid that they might be blamed for Harry Potter's continued existence. Voldemort, however, seemed to be speaking more to himself than to any of them, still addressing the unconscious body above him. I have been careless, and so have been thwarted by luck and chance, those wreckers of all but the best laid plans. But I know better now. I understand those things that I did not understand before. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter, and I shall be. At these words, seemingly in response to them, a sudden wail sounded, a terrible, drawn-out cry of misery and pain. Many of those at the table looked downward, startled for the sound that seemed to issue from below their feet. Wormtail, said Voldemort with no change in his quiet, thoughtful tone, and without removing his eyes from the revolving body above. Have I not spoken to you about keeping our prisoner quiet? Yes, my lord, gasped the small man halfway down the table, who had been sitting so low in his chair that it appeared at first glance to be unoccupied. Now he scrambled from his seat and scurried from the room, leaving nothing behind him but a curious gleam of silver. As I was saying, continued Voldemort, looking again at the tense faces of his followers, I understand better now. I shall need, for instance, to borrow a wand from one of you before I go to kill Potter. The faces around him displayed nothing but shock. He might have announced that he wanted to borrow one of their arms. No volunteers, said Voldemort. Let's see. Lucius, I see no reason for you to have a wand anymore. 
Lucius Malfoy looked up. His skin appeared yellowish and waxy in the firelight, and his eyes were sunken and shadowed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. My lord? Your wand, Lucius. I require your wand. I... Malfoy glanced sideways at his wife. She was staring straight ahead, quite as pale as he was, her long blonde hair hanging down her back. But beneath the table, her slim fingers closed briefly on his wrist. At her touch, Malfoy put his hand into his robes, withdrew a wand, and passed it along to Voldemort, who held it up in front of his red eyes, examining it closely. What is it? Elm, my lord, whispered Malfoy. And the core? Dragon, dragon heartstring. Good, said Voldemort. He drew out his own wand to compare the lengths, and Lucius Malfoy made an involuntary movement for a fraction of a second. It seemed he expected to receive Voldemort's wand in exchange for his own. The gesture was not missed by Voldemort, whose eyes widened maliciously. Give you my wand, Lucius. My wand? Some of the throng sniggered. I have given you your liberty, Lucius. Is it not enough for you? But I have noticed that you and your family seem less than happy of late. What is it about my presence in your home that displeases you, Lucius? Nothing. Nothing, my lord. Such lies, Lucius. The soft voice seemed to hiss on even after the cruel mouth had stopped moving. One or two of the wizards barely repressed a shudder as the hissing grew louder something heavy could be heard sliding across the floor beneath the table. The huge snake emerged to climb slowly up Voldemort's chair. It rose, seemingly endlessly, and came to rest across Voldemort's shoulders. Its neck, the thickness of a man's thighs, its eyes with their vertical slits for pupils, unblinking. Voldemort stroked the creature absently with long, thin fingers still looking at Lucius Malfoy. Why do the Malfoys look so unhappy with their lot? Is it my return? My rise to power? Was that not the very thing they professed to desire for so many years? Of course, my lord, said Lucius Malfoy. His hand shook as he wiped the sweat from his upper lip. We did desire it. We do. And to Malfoy's left, his wife made an odd, stiff nod, her eyes averted from Voldemort and the snake. To his right, his son Draco, who had been gazing up at the inert body overhead, glanced quickly at Voldemort and away again, terrified to make eye contact. My lord, said a dark woman halfway down the table, her voice constricted with emotion. It is an honor to have you here in our family's house. There can be no higher pleasure. She sat beside her sister as, unlike in her looks, with her dark hair and heavy-lidded eyes, as she was in bearing and demeanor. Where Narcissa sat rigid and impassive, Bellatrix leaned toward Voldemort, for mere words cannot demonstrate her longing for closeness. No higher pleasure, repeated Voldemort, his head tilted to one side as he considered Bellatrix. That means a great deal, Bellatrix, from you. Her face flooded with color, her eyes welled with the tears of delight. My lord knows I speak nothing but the truth. No higher pleasure, even compared with the happy event that, I hear, has taken place in your family this week? She stared at him, her lips parted, evidently confused. I don't know what you mean, my lord. I am talking about your niece, Bellatrix, and yours, Lucius and Narcissa. She has just married the werewolf Remus Lupin. You must be so proud. There was an eruption of jeering laughter from around the table. Many leaned forward to exchange gleeful looks. A few thumped their table with their fists. The great snake, disliking the disturbance, opened its wide mouth and hissed angrily, but the Death Eaters did not hear it. So jubilant they were at Bellatrix and the Malfoy's humiliation. Bellatrix's face, so recently flushed with happiness, had turned an ugly, blotchy red. 
She is no niece of ours, my lord, she cried over the outpouring of mirth. We, Narcissa and I, have never set eyes on our sister since she married the mudblood. This brat has nothing to do with either of us, nor any beasts she marries. What say you, Draco? asked Voldemort, and though his voice was quiet, it carried clearly through the catcalls and jeers. Will you babysit the cubs? The hilarity mounted. Draco Malfoy looked in terror at his father, who was staring down into his own lap, then caught his mother's eyes. She shook her head, almost imperceptibly, then resumed her own deadpan stare at the opposite wall. Enough, said Voldemort, stroking at the angry snake. Enough. And the laughter died at once. Many of our oldest family trees become a little diseased over time, he said as Bellatrix gazed at him, breathless and imploring. You must prune yours, must you not, to keep it healthy? Cut away those parts that threaten the health of the rest. Yes, my lord, whispered Bellatrix, and her eyes swam with tears of gratitude again. At the first chance. You shall have it, said Voldemort. And in your family, so in the world, we shall cut away with the canker that infects us until only those of true blood remain. Voldemort raised Lucius Malfoy's wand, pointed it directly at the slowly revolving figure suspended over the table, and gave it a tiny flick. The figure came to life with a groan and began to struggle against invisible bonds. Do you recognize our guest, Severus? asked Voldemort, and Snape raised his eyes to the upside-down face. All of the Death Eaters were looking up at the captive now, as though they had been given permission to show curiosity. As she revolved to face the firelight, the woman said in a cracked and terrified voice, Severus, help me! Ah, yes, said Snape as the prisoner turned slowly away again. And you, Draco? asked Voldemort, stroking the snake's snout with his wand-free hand. Draco shook his head jerkily. Now that the woman had awoken, he seemed unable to look at her anymore. But you would not have taken her classes, said Voldemort. For those of you who do not know, we are joined here tonight by Charity Burbage, who, until recently, taught at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. There were small noises of comprehension around the table. A broad, hunched woman with pointed teeth cackled. Yes, Professor Burbage taught the children of witches and wizards all about muggles. How they are not so different from us. One of the Death Eaters spat on the floor. Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape again. Severus, please, please. Silence, said Voldemort with another twitch of Malfoy's wand, and Charity felt silent as if she was gagged. Not content with corrupting and polluting the minds of wizarding children, last week Professor Burbage wrote an impassioned defense of mudbloods in the Daily Prophet. Wizards, she says, must accept these thieves of their knowledge and magic. The dwindling of purebloods is, says Professor Burbage, a most desirable circumstance. She would have us all mate with muggles, or no doubt, werewolves. Nobody laughed this time. There was no mistaking the anger and contempt in Voldemort's voice. For the third time, Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape. Tears were pouring from her eyes into her hair. Snape looked back at her, quite impassive, as she turned slowly away from him again. Avada Kedavra! And the flash of green light illuminated every corner of the room. Charity fell with a resounding crash onto the table below, which trembled and creaked. Several of the Death Eaters leapt back in their chairs. Draco fell out of his and onto the floor. Dinner, Nagini, said Voldemort softly, and the great snake swayed and slithered from his shoulders onto the polished wood. And that is the end of chapter one, the Dark Lord uh, Ascending. Now, 
I'm gonna let Chase kind of give his takeaways on this chapter since I just read it, but we can see a lot of big moments and full circles and potential foreshadows just in those 13 pages alone. So with that being said, Chase, tell me what you thought about that chapter. He's sick. I mean, he just, Voldemort just keeps proving how sick he really is. First of all, Charity Burbage, um, which, especially in the film, like, that's the iconic thing. They don't really make it known in the film, but that person that's, like, flying in the air, just if our audience hasn't read the book, that's who that is that's, like, levitating and he kills. Um, like, why Charity Burbage, though? I, I mean, I get it. Like, it, I get it. Like, the muggles, like, she was all, like, wrote that stuff about being pro for muggles. But out of all people, <laughs> like, that's who you really want to go for. But yeah, it's just um, really opens the chapter with a bang. And I think it even shows as you as you know, we're reading the chapter. Um, something's quite something makes you question a little bit about what's going on between Voldemort and Snape here and what's kind of going on, because you're getting kind of that sense of maybe they're not on the same page um maybe it seemed almost as if snape was maybe surprised about something or how he kept trying to tell them you know that's not what's happening he's they're not moving harry until this date but yet then you know everyone kept kind of trying to jump in there uh it it definitely goes to show how it looks like they're almost not on the same page um Voldemort though like he really doesn't care at all for the Malfoys like the way he just took Lucius's wand your wand Lucius <laughs> your wand <laughs> I'm in need of a wand and I don't see any reason why you need it anymore <laughs> like it just goes to show he really no and what's funny is like the Malfoys have always been the ones to like act like they are the pure blood house like they are almost like want to be like the golden child of Voldemort and he doesn't give two shits about them Bellatrix over there is getting all getting all hot for him <laughs> trying to like be as close as possible Ooh, yes master take his wand <laughs> take his turn around slowly and give that to Voldemort Lucius <laughs> twisted that little line there from one of my favorite books but yeah, it, honestly, like, what it does is it really shocks you as a, a reader, I would say, um, because it opens this novel with a bang of, like, wow, he, he already killed someone else. Um, almost, like, kind of brings you back uh, to a minute of... It kind of makes you reminisce on Goblet of Fire because you had, um, you know, the whole deal with, with the person that was missing there and now you have charity burbage that's missing here so it's it, it kind of gives you a little bit of that whole thing again like how it opened with frank and that whole eerie scene with nagini too it's very kind of similar but it definitely opens this book with the bang i loved it it was literally i was talking to josh today guys i was like I kept trying to write bullet points on this chapter, and I was like, I guess I'm just going to have to write the whole damn chapter. <laughs> like, because, like, all of it is literally important. Uh, and even, like, the small notes that we don't think about, they, if you look at the way these interactions are occurring, they're playing a huge role later on. So definitely think about that. But what about you, man? What are your takeaways from this chapter here? 
So with uh, kind of like an answer to your thing and more like a like I don't think that Voldemort and Snape were on the same page. It was the other Death Eater that was like trying to contradict like the information. But the one thing I will say, it was really cool to see Voldemort lock eyes in that ferocious gaze into Snape. Because remember when he does that, he's yeah. trying to read your mind. And we know one thing about Snape is he is one of the most accomplished occlumens, meaning he's very mm-hmm. good at closing his mind. And like remember, because exactly, even last yeah. but when we saw that that uh, orphanage scene where. He did that as, like, an 11-year-old to Dumbledore. He's like, tell the truth, and, like, stared at him, like, tried to get the yeah. truth out of Dumbledore's face. So, like, we, that kind of is, like, a cool full circle moment that I thought was really impressive that they kind of put in there. And, um, but to your point about the Malfoys, like, the, leading up into Voldemort's return at, back in Goblet of Fire, like, the Malfoys kind of thought that they were better than everybody else, that they were the yeah. chosen people from Voldemort. Like, Voldemort liked the Malfoys more than anybody else. Like, they were alone his truest people and it's funny how he basically spits on him now he's like you don't need a wand lucius i'll just take that from you <laughs> like oh you're not happy jesse like why why don't you like me in your house like you know this and it's kind of cool because you start to see a little bit of foreshadow uh, c- coming towards like the very end of this book if you guys have read it before like the malfoys kind of they have a little moment towards the end and i'll, I'll just say that i don't want to bring anything up there but uh yeah it's just it's interesting, and why this chapter is so important is because we see, like, the layers of different plans, right? You know, when they're going to move Harry, why it's important, what the false trail is, what Snape's saying, like, because now, what you, like, what's happening is, like, if Snape's right about where they're moving Harry and when they're doing it, if Snape is correct, and we're going to find out here shortly if he is or not, all that does is, like, make Voldemort even more comfortable like trusting Snape, like right. like you know that's that's the big that's a big thing. And then on top of that, talking about hey, why are we killing this random lady that's above us? Well, she was the Muggle studies teacher, right? And if there's yeah. one thing that Voldemort hates, it's the idea that Muggles and wizards should be on common ground. Like Voldemort thinks that they should like kill all the Muggles. Like he wants no Muggles. He wants only purebloods right. alive. Which is very ironic, seeing how he's a half blood himself. But I guess that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah. So like, I just thought that there was just so much detail, foreshadow, and full circle moments just in a very small. And like you said, it was actually very similar to Goblet of Fire, when you know they killed Frank while like he was kind of not in full body yet, but they were having yeah. conversations there, and like he was overhearing it, and then it's just. You know, just random killings like that that just show how he's so remorseless about what he does. Um, and that also kind of plays into a fun fact of, like, you know, we were asking me something. Now you got to see every single Death Eater at that table just witnessed a murder. And why that's important, not really important, but, like, it's a small detail, is, like, when we figure out transportation-wise what happens here in a few, how things can be seen in certain ways. We'll kind of talk about that in just a bit. But it's just, there was just a lot of detailed plans also action and also you can kind of see and also one other thing too that i didn't even mention that scream from underneath them didn't come from cherry burbage there's another prisoner there which is really important because we're going to find out who that is in a little bit uh i did think it was important too to include how people were stationed and where voldemort saw them because remember up until order of the phoenix voldemort held bellatrix probably in the highest regard but when she failed to bring yeah. back the prophecy, now she's kind of at the middle of the table, which is, it's interesting how, you know, that. it's like, it's almost like the MySpace top 10 friends where you get to, you get to like move people in order of like, who was your best <laughs> friend this week? Oh, you did, you did more for me. You're my number one friend. Bellatrix, you're my number four now. Sorry. <laughs> like, it's just funny how it's like the MySpace top 10 with Voldemort there with his Death Eaters, depending on who serves him the best. 
it's uh, it's very interesting. So those are some of the big takeaways that I had from the first chapter. And like you said, that's only chapter one, and that was only 12 pages long. Like there is so much just in those 12 pages that it's uh, it sets the tone really strongly for the rest of the book. With with that being said, though, I'll kind of let you get us into chapter two a little bit, put out some of your, your bullet points, and then we'll go we'll get through that one and continue on, man. Yeah, uh, one thing I did want to say that made me think of that because you mentioned Bellatrix is think of how like all of them try to almost suck up besides Snape, besides my boy Severus. <laughs> like they're all trying to suck up to Voldemort and he he doesn't care at all like he literally looks at Bellatrix and goes oh I heard your niece and Narcissa your niece is marrying well werewolves now <laughs> like just like Bellatrix is trying to like be his number one girl and instantly turns blood red <laughs> like what is going oh oh so you really want to get on my good side well your niece just married a werewolf <laughs> just and that's actually crazy. a good point that you mentioned that because that's a foreshadow too because he said that you have to prune the dead ones there so basically he's if you guys think about it he's giving the order for bellatrix to kill tonks like hey like he goes yeah. she, she tells him at first chance i'll do it and that's about to come into a play here mm-hmm. too very soon that we'll we'll learn about that so yeah good stuff man it's crazy um, yeah, so I'll just kind of uh, jump into chapter two here. So uh, the one of the big things about chapter two before I kind of get us started here is it really is full of like full circle moments and really making you feel kind of the we've seen in books past where, of course, like Harry's been miserable all summer and depressed. He's really just more feeling like sadness i would say like almost like shock and surprise and sadness like still can't believe like after all this time (laughs) there's an iconic line for you (laughs) after all this time (laughs) dumbledore is gone foreshadowing (laughs) coming straight from chase (laughs) well think about it it's really it's really not that long of a time though it's only been about a month because the school year ended and like like there's only two months of summer right so like it's only been a month since dumbledore has been killed so yeah not a lot of time to process yeah not yeah not too long yeah definitely i guess what i mean to say by that is he knew dumbledore for so long it's still like hitting him just like you're saying like it's still he's still processing everything um, I'm not going to read this whole chapter. These are just bullet points, but I did want to bring up this part about page 13. This is kind of cool. Jay Nelly, I got to give him props on this. He definitely cleared this up for me today because I was a little bit thrown off with some of the some of the stuff here. But this was this was really good stuff. So um, just starting out, like it really opens opens it kind of in an action packed kind of mysterious moment. It says. Harry was bleeding, clutching his right hand in his left and swearing under his breath. He shouldered open his bedroom door. There was a crunch of breaking china. He had trodden on a cup of cold tea that had been sitting on the floor outside his bedroom door. What the? He looked around. The landing on number four privet drive was deserted. Possibly the cup of tea was Dudley's idea of a clever booby trap. Keeping his bleeding hand elevated, Harry scraped the fragments of, of the cup together with the other hand and then threw them into the already crammed bin just visible inside his bedroom door. Then he tramped across to the bathroom to run his finger under the tap. It was stupid, pointless, irritating, beyond belief. 
that he still had four days left of being unable to perform magic, but he had to admit to himself that this jagged cut in his finger would have defeated him. He had never learned how to repair wounds, and now he came to think of it, particularly in light of his immediate plans, this seemed a serious flaw in his magical education. Making a mental note to ask Hermione how it was done, he used a large wad of toilet paper to mop up as much of the tea as he could before returning to his bedroom and slamming the door behind him. So he's definitely already having not the best day. <laughs> like, not the best day right now. Kind of got a little bit of an attitude problem. Do we, Harry? Are we feeling a little sorry for ourselves? <laughs> Sounds like we're feeling sorry for ourselves again. <laughs> again. So uh, I just wanted to how bring that up How concerning is that, though? Yeah, sorry, after you. Like, how, how... No worries. Like, I just wonder, like, how concerning is that? Like, you had six years of magical education. You didn't know how to repair a simple wound. Like, I know he's yeah. got four more days before he can even use magic, so I get that part of it. But, like, let's say he was able to. He even admitted that, like, he wouldn't have been able to fix it. <laughs> Bro, you've been learning magic for six years. You couldn't, like, that's like a putting a Band-Aid on a finger is the easiest thing. You can't, like, seal up that. You don't know how to do that. I think that's very concerning that he doesn't know how to fix a simple wound like a paper cut like you know what i mean i know it's a oh, shard yeah. of metal maybe, or a glass that broke him from the mirror had, but still yeah no 100 percent. maybe if he had studied a little bit more in charms and healing magic than he did defense against the dark arts he would have done better on his owls don't you think that's something you learn in defense against the dark arts though you're gonna get hit with some curses that are gonna fuck you up sometimes like how about we learn how to like make ourselves yeah. better like you know what i mean i don't know man <laughs> very weird <laughs> very yeah, strange no, so true um so the next kind of just jumping into bullet points here um so he starts going through his school trunk um and this one that i liked because it is a full circle moment so he stabs himself on a pin and it's a pin we've definitely seen before and i had to bring this up just because it's from my boy and he said it's a pin that said potter stinks support cedric diggory and it brings us back to you're definitely having these goblet of fire kind of moments there and and that's your book man and it's definitely one of my favorites uh so and it mentioned cedric so i had to say it <laughs> but you're having all these that's what's so great about this book too because they knew it was the last book so instantly from the beginning we're getting all these full circle moments about the entire series it's not just focused on something telling its own story um, then in the trunk, what he sees is, you know, he finds a sneak-a-scope and then the cracked gold locket, which is a huge thing, which it reminds him. And it's, it's, it has that signed note where it said R-A-B. Um, and I do want to read this little section here. This is on page 14 because it just describes that when he sees that, it was he kept that gold gold locket not because it actually was worth anything but because of the price it was just to attain it um and he says here so this is on uh, right here it says so i'll start page 14 real quick it just says here he sat up and examined a jagged piece of which he had cut himself seeing nothing but his own bright green eye reflected back at him then he placed the fragment on top of this morning's daily profit which lay unread on the bed and attempted to stem in sudden upsurge of bitter memories, the stabs of regret, and off-logging the discovery of the broken mirror had occasioned by attacking the rest of the rubbish in the trunk. 
and skipping down here for just a minute because he mentions he does pull out these are kind of the full circles here he said he wondered what his aunt and uncle would do with them burn them if in the dead of dead of night probably if they were evidence of some dreadful crime his muggle clothing invisibility cloak potion making kit certain books the photograph album hagrid had once given him a stack of letters and his wand had been repacked into an old rucksack in front of the pocket where the marauders map and the locket with the note signed rab inside it the locket was accorded this place of honor not because it was valuable in all us usual senses it was worthless but because of what it had cost to attain it and it just goes to show in that one little sentence there he's still like almost in shock that albus is really gone and on top of that this whole idea of they thought this was a big horcrux was really for nothing um so jump in here this is when we really this is something we can't skip so the daily prophet has this big article that's written by aphelius dodge i called him dodge did i pronounce that right the last name i, I was afraid I it was doge <laughs> No, I think it's I think it's Doge, and the only reason I think that it's like this is you know funny funny enough because this is all the rage today. If you guys hear about that new cryptocurrency Dogecoin, like yeah. like, like literally it's spelled the same way. So I think it's Elphias Doge, but I could be wrong. But it's spelled the same right. as Dogecoin, so I think it's Doge. I no, know. I think you're right because I've been calling it Doggy Coin for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> the worst at name. So I first thought his name was Aphilius Doggy. But I was like, that's just lame, man. I can't be supporting that. So I just changed it to Dodge. <laughs> well, we could the th really the thing use is, the Dodge like, right now. The only reason I wouldn't think it was Dodge is because like, if you think of like, how you would dodge a ball, there's a D in front of the G in, <laughs> yeah. in Dodge. So yeah. I think it's Doge. I think it's Alphias Doge. I think you're, I think you're right. It's D-O-G-E is how it's spelled, yep. guys. So just if you're listening to that. But so... There's this article that he writes in there in the Daily Prophet called Albus Dumbledore Remembered. And it says, I met Albus at the age of 11 on our first day at Hogwarts. Our mutual attraction was undoubtedly due to the fact that we both felt ourselves to be outsiders. I had contracted dragonpox shortly before arriving at school. And while I was no longer contagious, my pockmark visage and greenish hue did not encourage many to approach me. For his part, Albus had arrived at Hogwarts under the burden of unwanted notoriety. Scarcely a year previously, his father, Percival, had been convicted of a savage and well-publicized attack upon three young muggles. Albus never attempted to deny that his father, who was to die in Azkaban, had committed this crime. On the contrary, when I plucked up the courage to ask him, he assured me that he knew his father to be guilty. Beyond that, Dumbledore refused to speak of the sad business. Though many attempted to make him do so, some indeed were disposed to praise his father's actions and assumed that Albus, too, was a muggle hater. They could not have been more mistaken. As anybody who knew Albus would attest, he never revealed the remotest anti-muggle tendency. Indeed, his determined sport for muggle rights gained him many enemies in subsequent years. In a matter of months, however, Albus's own fame had begun to eclipse that of his father. By the end of the first year, he would never again to be known as the son of a muggle hater, but as nothing more or less than the most brilliant student ever seen at school. 
Those of us who were privileged to be his friend benefited from his example, not to mention his help and encouragement, with which he was always generous. He confessed to me in later life that he knew even then his greatest pleasure lay in teaching. He not only won every prize of note that the school offered, he was soon in regular correspondence with the most notable magical names of the day, including Nicholas Femel, the celebrated alchemist, Bethiel de Bagshot, the noted historian, and Aldebert Waffling, the magical theoretician. Several of his papers found their way into learned publications such as Transfiguration Today, Challenges and Charming, in the Practical Potioneer. Dumbledore's future career seemed likely to be meditoric, and the only question that remained was when he would become Minister of Magic. Though it was often predicted in later years that he was on the point of taking the job, however, he never had ministerial ambitions. Three years after we had started at Hogwarts, Albus's brother, Aberforth, arrived at school. They were not alike. Aberforth was never bookish, and unlike Albus, preferred to settle arguments by dueling rather than through reasoned discussion. However, it is a quite wrong to suggest, as some have, that the brothers were not friends. They rubbed along as comfortably as two different boys could do. In fairness to Aberforth, it must be admitted that living in Albus in shadow cannot have been an altogether comfortable experience. Being continually outshone was an occupational hazard of being his friend and cannot have been any more pleasurable as a brother. When Albus and I left Hogwarts, we intended to take the traditional tour of the world together, visiting and observing foreign wizards before pursuing our separate careers. However, tragedy intervened. On the very eve of our trip, Albus's mother, Kendra, died, leaving Albus the head and sole breadwinner of the family. I postponed my departure long enough to pay my respects at Kendra's funeral, then left for what was now to be a solitary journey. With a younger brother and sister to care for, and a little gold that left them, there could no longer be any question of Albus accompanying me. That was the period of our lives when we had at least had least contact. I wrote to Albus describing perhaps insensitivity, insensitively, the word the wonders of my journey from narrow escapes from chimeras in Greece to the experiments of the Egyptian alchemists. His letter told me little of his day-to-day -day life, which I guessed to be frustratingly dull, for such brilliant wizard. Immersed in my own experiences, it was with honor, it was with horror that I heard toward the end of my year's travel that yet another tragedy had struck, the Dumbledores, the death of his sister Ariana. Though Ariana had been in poor health for a long time, the blow coming so soon after the loss of their mother had a profound effect on both of her brothers. All those closest to Albus, and I count myself one of the lucky number, agree that Ariana's death and Albus's feeling of personal responsibility for it, though of course he was guiltless, left their mark upon him forevermore. I returned home to find a young man who had experienced a much older person's suffering. Albus was more reserved than before and much less lighthearted. To add to his misery, the loss of Ariana had led not to a renewed closeness between Albus and Aberforth, but to an estrangement. In time, this would lift. In later years, they reestablished. If not a close relationship, then certainly a cordial one. However, he rarely spoke of his parents uh, or of Ariana from then on. 
and his friends learn not to mention them. Other quills will describe the triumphs of the following years. Dumbledore's innumerable contributions to the store of wizard, wizarding knowledge, including his discovery of the 12 uses of dragon blood, will benefit generations to come. As will the wisdom he displayed in many judgments he made while chief warlock of the Wizengamot. They say still that no wizarding duel ever matched that between Dumbledore and Grindelwald in 1945. Those who witnessed it have written of the terror and the awe they felt as they watched these two extraordinary wizards do battle. Dumbledore's triumph and its consequences for the wizarding world are considered a turning point in magical history to match the introduction of the International Statue of Secrecy or the downfall of He Who Must Not Be Named. Albus Dumbledore was never proud or vain. He could find something to value in anyone, however apparently insignificant or wretched, and I believe that his early losses endowed him with a great humanity and sympathy. I shall miss his friendship more than I can say, but my loss is as nothing compared to the Wizarding World's. That he was the most inspiring and the best loved of all Hogwarts headmasters cannot be in question. He died as he lived working always for the greater good, and to his last hour, as willing to stretch out a hand to a boy with dragon pox as he was on the day that I met him. So, like, really big stuff there, because we've never heard really any of this history of Albus before. Um, and Harry even kind of expands on this real quick for just a moment, and it even says... Harry finished reading but continued to gaze at the picture accompanying the obituary. Dumbledore was wearing his familiar kindly smile, but as he peered over the top of the half-moon spectacles, he gave the impression even in newsprint of x-raying Harry whose sadness mingled with a sense of humiliation. He had thought he knew Dumbledore quite well, but ever since reading this obituary, he had been forced to recognize that he had barely known him at all. Never once had he imagined Dumbledore's childhood or youth it was as though he had sprung into being as Harry had known him, vulnerable, silver-haired, and old. The idea of a teenage Dumbledore was simply odd, like trying to imagine a stupid Hermione or a friendly, blasted, ended Scrooge. So it just goes to show, like, I don't... It's not that people are, like, pompous and just always think of themselves. Well, one, Albus is definitely a modest guy because he never talked about his past accomplishments ever. But you're finding out all these secrets about him, which really even raises another point that comes up kind of in a moment here of people even question, you know, whether his choices were really kind of on the right path. Like everyone knows like where his loyalty lies and that he was for the greater good, but it causes a lot of questions to be raised about like his past family and, and that sort of thing. Um, what would you say about the stuff that we're learning about Albus here? Uh, so, I mean, really what it comes down to is that we didn't know Albus Dumbledore very well at all. Neither did Harry. As we read through that, like, we mm -hmm. kind of get... When we read these books, we kind of read from Harry's perspective more oftentimes than not. So it, it's interesting to kind of get, like, a quick backstory. This one was kind of put painted Dumbledore in a, in a positive light. But here in a couple pages, we're going to see a different article kind of potentially painting him in a different light than positive. I will say up until this point, a couple things that I thought were really interesting, if we go back to the beginning of chapter two, like 
I found it really interesting how after six years of going to Hogwarts and returning to the Dursleys every single summer, he never once completely emptied his school trunk, which is why he had those weird, <laughs> these weird like random things in the bottom of his trunk. It's like you'd think that at some point you would fully unpack, repack, get yourself organized, but that didn't seem to be the case. And when you talk about that Potter Stinks badge with like support Cedric Diggory, why the hell did Harry have one of them? Like, why did he just want to keep a badge of him stinking? Like, 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 yeah, ah, yeah guys, I'm so Harry weird. Potter. I stink. I like Cedric. Like, what? I just didn't understand why <laughs> Harry had one of those badges himself. I thought it was very interesting. Um, yeah, I just uh, then the, the, the two way mirror that being a big foreshadow of something that happens later on, and the, we'll see a little bit further. But then the big full circle moment before that that. Uh, paragraph that not paragraph i say the excerpt from the column that you read from alphias doge uh the really full circle moment is that there was a small mention on the front of the daily prophet that charity burbage the muggle studies teacher resigned and if you guys remember yeah, from that was on ap- there yeah, the, yeah, yeah right. chapter one like that that, that <laughs> we understand what actually happened to her so thought that was mm-hmm. pretty cool but in terms of just what we saw there from alphias doge it was cool to kind of get an idea of what dumbledore was like from one of his friends perspectives but you know, as anything, if you ask, like, if you were to ask me about Chase, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paint Chase into like a positive image. Like, if someone's like, "Hey, tell me about Chase," I'll say all these awesome things. Always a great guy. Always there for his friends. Does really great things. But maybe if you ask, maybe his ex girlfriend or someone who doesn't like him as much, they're gonna <laughs> tell you something completely different. And we're about to see yeah. how someone has a very different op- opinion of of Dumbledore here very, very shortly. So those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, that was perfect. That's exactly what I was going to (laughs) read. So, uh, and this is, what's funny is it's, um, it's written by one of our favorite journalists. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I thought she was a bug still. (laughs) I didn't realize Hermione has kind of loosened her grip that much. But yeah, so one of our favorite journalists, kind of going all the way back to Goblet of Fire here where we first saw her. Uh, and she's definitely played a big role through this series is Rita Skeeter. Um, and we know uh, just as kind of remembering even from Goblet of Fire where Dumbledore said before when he was talking to her face to face and she said, Albus, did you enjoy my piece I wrote on you? And he said, oh, yeah, I love like the light you painted on me. How bad you ruined my image. And that's exactly what she does because she, you know, always wants to make a name for herself. That's for sure. But this one's called Dumbledore, The Truth at Last. Coming next week, the shocking story of the flawed genius considered by many to be the greatest wizard of his generation. Stripping away the popular image of serene, silver-bearded wisdom, Rita Skeeter reveals the disturbed childhood, the lossless youth, the lifelong feuds and the guilty secrets that Dumbledore carried to his grave. Why was the man tipped to be Minister of Magic content to remain a mere headmaster? What was the real purpose of the secret organization known as the Order of the Phoenix? How did Dumbledore really meet his end? The answers to these and many more questions are explored in the explosive new biography, The Life and Lies of Alvis Dumbledore by Rita Skeeter, exclusively interviewed by Betty Braithwaite, page 13 inside. And going into it here, it says, Harry ripped open the paper and found page 13. The article was topped with a picture showing another familiar face, a woman wearing jeweled glasses with elaborately curled blonde hair, her teeth barred, and what was clearly supposed to be a winning smile. 
wiggling her fingers up at him, doing his best to ignore this nauseating image. Harry read on. In person, Rita Skeeter is much warmer and softer than her famously ferocious quill portraits might suggest. Greeting me in the hallway of her cozy home, she leads me straight into the kitchen for a cup of tea, a slice of pound cake, and it goes without saying, a steaming vat of fresh, freshest gossip. Well, of course, Dumbledore is a biographer's dream, says Skeeter. Such a long, full life. I'm sure my book will be the first of very, very many. Skeeter was certainly quick off her mark. Her 900-page book was completed a mere four weeks after Dumbledore's mysterious death in June. I ask her how she manages how she managed this super-fast feat. Oh, when you've been a journalist as long as I have, working to a deadline is second nature. I knew that the Wizarding World was clamoring for the full story, and I wanted to be the first to meet that need. I mention the recently widely publicized remarks of Elphilius Doge. <laughs> is it Doge? That's how you said it? We're gonna go That's how it. I say it. <laughs> Doge, <laughs> yeah, special advisor to the Wizen Gamut and long-standing friend of Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore's the Skeeter books contains less fact than a chocolate frog card. Skeeter throws back her head and laughs. Darling, Doji, <laughs> I remember interviewing him a few years back about mer people rights. Bless him, completely gaga. Seemed to think we were sitting at the bottom of a lake, Windermere kept telling me to watch out for trout and yet Ophelius doge accusations of inaccuracy have been echoed in many places does skeeter really feel that four short weeks have been enough to gain a full picture of dumbledore's long and extraordinary life oh my dear beamed skeeter wrapping me affectionately across the knuckles you know as well as i do how much information can be generated by a fat bag of galleons a refusal to hear the word no, and a sharp, quick, quotes quill. People were queuing to dish the dirt on Dumbledore anyways. Not everyone thought he was so wonderful, you know. He trod on an awful lot of important toes, but old Doji Doge can get off his high hippogriff because I've had access to source most journalists would swap their wands for. One who has never spoken in public before, who was close to Dumbledore during the most turbulent and disturbing phase of his youth. The advanced publicity for Skeeter's biography has certainly suggested that there will be shocks in store for those who believe Dumbledore to have led a blameless life. What were the biggest surprises that I uncovered, I asked. Now come off it, Betty. I'm not giving away all the highlights before anybody bought the book, <laughs> laughed Skeeter. But I promise that anybody who still thinks Dumbledore was white as his beard is in for a rude awakening. Let's just say that nobody hearing him rage against you-know-who would have dreamed that he dabbled in the dark arts himself in his youth. And for a wizard who spent his later years pleading for tolerance, he wasn't exactly broad-minded when he was younger. Yes, Albus Dumbledore had an extremely murky past, not to mention that very fishy family where he worked so hard to keep hushed up. I ask whether Skeeter is referring to Dumbledore's brother, Aberforth, whose conviction by the whizzing gamut for misuse of magic caused a minor scandal 15 years ago. Oh, Aberforth is just the tip of the dung heap.
laughed Skeeter. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about much worse than a brother with a fondness for fiddling with goats. Worse even than muggle-maiming father. Dumbledore couldn't keep either of them quiet anyways. They were both charged by the wizard gamut. No, it's the mother and the sister that intrigued me. And a little digging uncovered a positive nest of nasties. But as I say, you'll have to wait for chapters 9 to 12 for full details. All I can say now is it's no wonder Dumbledore never talked about how his nose got broken. Family skeletons notwithstanding, does Skeeter deny the brilliance that led to Dumbledore's many magical discoveries? He had brains, she concedes. Although many now question whether he could really take full credit for all his supposed achievements, as I reveal in Chapter 16, Eivor Dillonsby claims he had already discovered eight uses of dragon's blood when Dumbledore borrowed his papers. But the importance of some Dumbledore's achievements cannot, I adventure, be denied. What of his famous defeat of Grindelwald? Oh, now I'm glad you mentioned Grindelwald, said Skeeters with a tantalizing smile. I'm afraid those who go dewy-eyed over Dumbledore's spectacular victory must brace themselves for a bombshell. Or perhaps a dung bomb. Very dirty business indeed. All I say is, don't be so sure that there really was the spectacular duel of legend. After they've read my book, people may be forced to conclude that Grindelwald simply conjured a white handkerchief from the end of his wand and came quietly. Skeeter refuses to give any more away on this intriguing subject, so we turn instead to the relationship that will undoubtedly fascinate her readers more than any other. Oh, yes, says Skeeter, nodding briskly. I devote an entire chapter to the whole Potter-Dumbledore relationship. It's been called unhealthy, even sinister. Again, your readers will have to buy my book for the whole story, but there is no question that Dumbledore took an unnatural interest in Potter from the word go. Whether that was really in the boy's best interest, well, well, we'll see. It's certainly an open secret that Potter has had a most troubled adolescence. I ask whether Skeeter is still in touch with Harry Potter, whom she so famously interviewed last year, a breakthrough piece in which Potter spoke exclusively of his conviction that you-know-who had returned. Oh yes, we've developed a close bond, says Skeeter. Poor Potter has few real friends. We met at one of the most testing moments of his life, the Triwizard Tournament. I am probably one of the only people alive who can say that they knew the real Harry Potter, which leads us neatly to many rumors still circulating about Dumbledore's final hours. Does Skeeter believe that Potter was there when Dumbledore died? Well, I don't want to say too much. It's all in the book. But eyewitnesses in Hogwarts Castle saw Potter running away from the scene moments after Dumbledore fell, jumped, or was pushed. Potter later gave evidence against Severus Snape, a man against whom he was notoriously grudged. Is everything as it seems? That is for the wizarding community to decide once they've read my book. On that intriguing note, I take my leave. There can be no doubt that Skeeter has quilled an instant bestseller. Dumbledore's legion of admirers, meanwhile, may well be trembling at what is soon to emerge about their hero. <laughs> Talk about mudslinging, man. She is, she is a real piece of work. What would you think about that? 
Mudslinging is the exact word. And what I also find to be uh, accurate more often times than not, people always say there's two sides to every story. Uh, I, I heard this way many years ago, but there's actually three sides to every story, right? There's one side, there's the other side, and there's what actually happened. And most of the time, it's kind of in that middle. So we're going to kind of learn to see, like, was everything Elphias Doge said real? Or was majority of what Rhea Skeeter said real? Or is it kind of a mix of the two? And so that's what I'll kind of leave that little uh, foreshadow moment for you guys there. We're going to kind of see uh, what comes of what later on in the book. But mudslinging is definitely a, a proper term for what was we just read and Rhea Skeeter's <laughs> little article about him. So that's all I had to say on that. Yeah, man. No, you nailed it on the head. I was going to say those exact words, but the only other thing I would add is I like that she uh, she's such a real piece of work. She even took Dumbledore's famous phrase, come quietly. That <laughs> was great. She is what I thought was awful. What I thought was weird, too, is like not weird, but like something that she took liberties with. She like made it seem like her and Harry were best pals. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm one of the very few people that know <laughs> Harry like so well. Like, that was like you know she took uh, extra additional liberties with that that there. So um, one other thing I want to mention that I, I did I know that we went over it quickly, but I wanted to draw attention to it. Is like when we're talking about like the first part where Harry was feeling silly because he's like I don't think I ever knew Dumbledore. I don't ever asked him one personal question. I think he might have lied to me about it about what Dumbledore saw back in Sorcerer's Stone in the mirror of Erised, and mm-hmm. it's because yeah, I was, was you know we're gonna kind yeah. of see that come up again later on. Like what potentially Dumbledore did see back in the Sorcerer's Stone. So I just want to make sure I notated that before we, we move on there. Yeah. With that, yeah, with that being said, I'll let you kind of take it back there. Yeah, no, and remember, he even talks about that where he was saying, you know, he asked them uh, what he saw in the mirror of Vera said. And of course, Dumbledore said, Is uh, what do you say, me wearing a, a nice oh. pair of socks? Yeah, like me quote. opening a package of nice wool socks. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's, um, which, uh, you know, Grindelwald plays really a big part into what I think he really would have seen in the mirror of Earth's head, not giving anything away. Uh, just to close out this chapter, I'll go to the next one, and then Josh is going to close us out today. Well, he has a big battle, and then I'm going to let him take most of the ending chapter to close us out today, which we, he's got a big moment coming up here. But um, just to kind of let you see you know how harry's emotions reacted toward this here he goes this is on the bottom of page 28 lies harry bellowed and through the window he saw the next door neighbor who had paused to restart his lawnmower look up nervously harry sat down hard on the bed the broken bit of mirror danced away from him he picked it up and turned it over his fingers thinking and thinking of dumbledore and the lies with which rita skeeter was defaming him a flash of brightest blue harry froze his cut finger slipping on the jagged edge of the mirror again he had imagined it he must have done he glanced over his shoulder but the wall was sickly peach color of aunt petunia's choosing there was nothing blue there for a mirror to reflect he peered into the mirror fragment again and saw nothing but his own bright green eye looking back at him he had imagined it there was no other explanation imagined it because he had been thinking of his dead headmaster. If anything was certain, it was the bright blue eyes of Albus Dumbledore would never pierce him again. And it kind of even makes you wonder, like, is something going on with this mirror? And um, 
you know, <laughs> which plays a role later on, or is this all in, you know, Harry's head? I'll let y'all, uh, let y'all contemplate that one until we get there in a, a long time, long, long, long time from now. And then uh, I'll go ahead and kick us off on chapter three. Anything well, else you wanted to say about chapter two? Yeah, let me yeah let me go ahead and say a couple things, and then if it was cool, yeah, I wanted to just put like so that way it's not like you're you know reading it, everything you know, straight away. I was just gonna put a couple bullet yeah. points for chapter three Definitely. first, and then kind of let you take it from there. But what I was gonna say about uh, that mirror there is that you know this is this book is very interesting because it's a combination of foreshadow and full circles. So that mirror there and that big fright like flash of blue is going to come up big later on, right? Could it have been a trick of the light? Who knows? Could it have been something else that's important? Could it have been because he's thinking about it? There's a couple different possibilities. We will find out for good later on in this book what that actually meant. But it is something that is actually pretty important. Uh, one more thing about uh, Chapter 2 before we get into Chapter 3 is that we, like, when Harry was kind of filling his rucksack of what he's going to take with him, there was a specific book that he took. Uh, it was actually called... Yeah. Uh, what is it here? The Practical Defensive Magic and its Use Against the Dark Arts. So yep. these are really important things because that's what... Remember back in Order of the Phoenix, he received that book as a Christmas gift. And that's when he was teaching Dumbledore's army uh, you know, how mm -hmm. to kind of use spells and stuff. So that, that's another full circle, something coming up from a previous book making its appearance in here too. So you're going to see yep. that this is a cool uh, idea of bringing in new ideas, full circles from old ideas foreshadows of what's to come there's a lot of really cool things if you really look deep into the into the meanings of certain things so what i'm going to do for chapter three i'm just going to come out with like maybe four yeah. or five uh bullet points here then i'll let you kind of take it through the end of the chapter but i think it here we start here on page 32 i thought it was pretty cool uncle vernon thinks that the plan they had come up with for the jersey <laughs> safety is a trap for harry to steal number four privet drive from him like, you know, and one of the funniest things he says, he's like, why would I want this house? My godfather left me a house. You think I want this house for what, the happy memories? Like, you know, because like <laughs> yeah, how he was treated. Was he was like treated all bad, like all through his whole life. So I just thought that was a cool thing that like really, like Uncle Vernon is so, like he's got his head up his own ass that he just really doesn't think of anything. Like he really mistrusts everything to do with Harry and magic. We've seen that time and time again. But now he's like, man, what's going to happen is we're going to go and you're going to use some hocus pocus and all of a sudden the house will be in your name. <laughs> like you're trying to steal the house. <laughs> it's like, dude, I'm trying to keep you alive, you idiot and your family. Like, can we figure this out? So I thought that was pretty cool. But one big part here in this, I want to read the second paragraph on page 33. Mm -hmm. It actually talks a little bit about the protective charm wearing off. We're going to hear about it right here. He says, "Yeah." Uh, on page 33, the second paragraph, Kingsley and Mr. Weasley explained it all as well, Harry pressed on remorselessly. Once I'm 17, the protective charm that keeps me safe will break, and that exposes you as well as me. The order is sure Voldemort will target you, whether either to torture you to try to find out where I am, or because he thinks by holding you hostage, I'd come and try to rescue you. So he's trying to like show him like logically what I'm saying makes sense. Like don't be an idiot. But also I think it's kind of funny here because like would Harry actually go and try to rescue the Dursleys from Voldemort? I don't know. Like probably because <laughs> it's in his DNA. But like like I wonder if he really would you know risk it all for them considering how they treated him his whole life. So that's just yeah. the one thing I thought was kind of cool to mention there. Another thing too on page 34, just a page after that, another bullet point. Uncle Vernon 
wants to have Kingsley Shacklebolt as our personal security guard, <laughs> but Kingsley great. is actually assigned to the Mughal Prime Minister. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is like think about it because Kingsley is so used to being immersed in the Mughal world because he's like he's like the the protector for the Mughal Prime Minister. Like Uncle Vern can stomach him the most because he's like he's like big, powerful, get that deep voice, but also he knows how to dress like a muggle, looks more normal to Uncle Vernon than everybody else, and that's why Uncle Vernon wants him in here. He's like, no, he's protecting the. Imagine thinking, imagine being so arrogant, <laughs> you think you're worth the same protection as the Muggle Prime Minister. Like this guy who lives on number four, private drive who sells drills, should receive the best protection <laughs> from. Like, like that's ridiculous. Like Uncle Vernon just doesn't ha- like has screws loose up in his head, man. So I thought that was really funny. Um, but no, he's not going to get Kingsley. He doesn't get him. The Muggle Prime Minister has <laughs> Kingsley. Uh, on page 35, just going to read one paragraph on page 35 here, the fifth Go one. Go for it. Uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. I hope so, said Harry, because once I'm 17, all of them, Death Eaters, Dementors, maybe even in Fury, which means dead bodies enchanted by a dark wizard, will be able to find you and will certainly attack you. And if you remember the last time you tried to outrun wizards... I think you'll agree to help me. <laughs> like, so, no, like, 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 that's the, the whole thing, remember? Because he, he tried to outrun Hagrid, and Hagrid, like, found him on the rock in the hut, and it was just, I thought that was something that was worth mentioning. And, it, and the whole thing that kind of comes all the way through, kind of full circle here, is Dudley, the one who tormented yeah. and tortured Harry growing up, is actually the one who says he's going to accept the protection from the Order. And that pretty much settled the matter. Like, yeah. That's what's gonna happen. The Dudley, Dudley of all people, the one who like nonstop just tormented Harry from a young age. Remember, you like gang up on him, like punch him in the face, have his gang like like chase him around. Like the the his aunt's dog would run him up trees and stuff. Like, like all the things that happen, we're starting to see Dudley start to come around, and that's about to play a little bit more. Which what Chase is gonna take here in just a second. Um, Dudley starts to be thankful and grateful for uh, what happened in Order of the Phoenix. And I thought that was really, really cool. So uh, I, I also want to read this part in, in page 36, just the second paragraph, because I think it's very, very, it's like one of those things where you don't know how to feel. Almost like how we're not going to know how to feel when we finish reading Harry Potter. Like we're going to be happy that we got through all the hard work, but then we're also going to kind of feel sad that we moved on from a big part of our life, right? So let me go ahead right. and read this second paragraph here. It says, They'll be here in about five minutes, he said, and then when none of the Dursleys replied, he left the room. The prospect of parting, probably forever, from his aunt, uncle, and cousin was one that he was able to contemplate quite cheerfully, but there was nevertheless a certain awkwardness in the air. What did you say to one another at the end of 16 years of solid dislike? So he's got these weird conflicting emotions, like, I'm never going to see these people again. Like, I might never, ever see any of these people. I grew up my whole life here. Even though it was all terrible, weird memories, it was comfortable. I knew what to expect. Now I'm going out into the world with I don't know what's going to happen. So, like, even though it was shitty, it was almost like a security blanket, and he knew at least what to expect. Now he's got no idea. They're going to be gone, and he's got to go on his own way. So uh, with that being said, man, at page 36, I'll go ahead and pass it off to you, and I'll let you take what you know from there to the end of the chapter, bro, whatever you want to cover from there. Yeah, uh, quick question, too, because I uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't he, like, so also fond of Kingsley? Because he saw him on the news, didn't he? Uh, Uncle Vernon? Yes. I thought he, like, saw yeah. him on the news. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Wow. Just like you said, like, he clearly thinks highly of himself. <laughs> the drill guy. <laughs> but The drill guy. Yeah. Uncle Vernon never ceases to impress me. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, okay, so on page 36 here, 
I'll just start in the middle because that's what uh, really when it kind of starts to stand out and you really start to see you kind of can see a little bit where you even feel like a little bit maybe even Uncle Vernon a little bit but definitely I feel like Petunia and Dudley at least had some sort of emotional connection with Harry here and it, it kind of is definitely that um really kind of like wow i can't believe time is passing like this is it like this could very well be the last time he sees them this is kind of going through here um and this is on page 36 so uh i'll start kind of in the middle it says uh the doorbell rang harry hesitated then headed back out of his room and downstairs it was too much to expect hestia and daedalus to cope with D the dursleys on their own harry potter squeaked an excited voice the moment harry had opened the door a small man in a maved top hat was sweeping him a deep bow, an honor as ever. Thanks, Daedalus, said Harry, bestowing a small and embarrassed smile upon the dark-haired Hestia. It's really good of you to do this. They're through here, my aunt and uncle and his cousin. Good day to you, Harry Potter relatives, said Daedalus happily, striding into the living room. The Dursleys did not look at all happy to be addressed thus. Harry half expected another change of mind. Dudley shrank nearer to his mother at the sight of the witch and wizard. I see you are packed and ready. Excellent. The plan, as Harry has told you, is a simple one, said Daedalus, pulling an immense pocket watch out of his waistcoat and examining it. We shall be leaving before Harry does, due to the danger of using magic in your own house. Harry's being still underage, it could provide the ministry with an excuse to arrest him. We shall be driving, say, ten miles or so, before disapparating to the safe location we have picked out for you. You know how to drive, I take it, he asked Uncle Vernon politely. No, how to? Of course I ruddy well know how to drive, <laughs> spluttered Uncle Vernon. <laughs> very clever of you, sir, very clever. I personally would be utterly bamboozled by all those buttons and knobs, said Daedalus. He was clearly under the impression that he was flattering Vernon Dursley, who was visibly losing confidence in the plan with every word Daedalus spoke. Can't even drive, he muttered under his breath, his mustache rippling indignantly. But fortunately, neither Daedalus nor Hestia seemed to hear him. You, Harry, Daedalus continued, will wait here for your guard. There has been a little change in the arrangements. What do you mean? said Harry at once. I thought Mad Eye was going to come and take my side, take, take me by side along apparition. Can't do it," said Hestia tersely. Mad Eye will explain. The Dursleys who had listed, listened to all of this with looks of utter incomprehension, comprehensions on their faces, jumped as loud as voice screeched. "Hurry up!" Harry looked all around the room before realizing that the voice had issued from Daedalus's pocket watch. Quite right. We're operating to a very tight schedule, said Daedalus, nodding at the watch and tucking it back into his waistcoat. We are attempting to time your departure from the house with your family's disapparation. Harry, thus the charm breaks at the moment you all head for safety. He turned to the Dursleys. Well, we all packed and ready to go? None of them answered him. Uncle Vernon was still staring appalled at the bulge in Daedalus' waistcoat pocket. Perhaps we should wait outside in the hall, Daedalus, murmured Hestia. She clearly felt that it would be tactless for them to remain in the room while Harry and the Dursleys exchanged loving, possibly tearful farewells. 
There's no need, Harry muttered, but Uncle Vernon made any further explanation unnecessary by saying loudly, Well, this is goodbye then, boy. He swung his right arm upward to shake Harry's hand, but at the last moment seemed unable to face it, and merely closed his fist and began swinging it backward and forward like a metronome. Ready, Diddy? asked Petunia, Aunt Petunia, fussing, fussily checking to the clasp on her ham, of her handbag so as to avoid looking at Harry altogether. Dudley did not answer, but stood there with a mouth slightly ajar, reminding Harry a little of the giant groth. Come along, then, said Uncle Vernon. He had already reached the living room door when Dudley mumbled. I don't understand. What don't you understand, Popkin? asked Aunt Petunia, looking up at her son. Dudley raised a large ham-like hand to point at Harry. Why isn't he coming with us? Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia froze, where they stood staring at Dudley as though he had just expressed a desire to become a ballerina. What? said Uncle Vernon loudly. Why isn't he coming too? asked Dudley. Well, he he doesn't want to go, <laughs> said Uncle Vernon, turning to glare at Harry and adding, You don't want to, do you? Not in the slightest, said Harry. There you are, Uncle Vernon told Dudley. Now come on, we're off. He marched out of the room. They heard the front door open, but Dudley did not move. And after a few faltering steps, Aunt Petunia stopped too. What now? barked Uncle Vernon, reappearing in the doorway. It seemed Dudley was struggling with concepts too difficult to put into words. After several moments of apparently painful internal struggle, he said, But where is he going to go? Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon looked at each other. It was clear that Dudley was frightening them. Hestia Jones broke the silence. But surely you know where your nephew is going, she asked, looking bewildered. Certainly we know, said Vernon Dursley. He's off with some of you lot, isn't he? Right. Dudley, let's get in the car. You heard the man. We're in a hurry. Again, Vernon Dursley marched as far as the front door, but Dudley did not follow. Off with some of our lot. Hestia looked outraged. Harry had met this attitude before. Witches and wizards seemed stunned that his closest living relatives took to little interest in the famous Harry Potter. It's fine, Harry assured her. It doesn't matter, honestly. Doesn't matter, repeated Hestia, her voice rising ominously. Don't these people realize what you've been through? What danger you're in? The unique position you hold in the hearts of the anti-Voldemort movement? Er, no, they don't, said Harry. They think I'm a waste of space, actually, but I'm used to... I don't think you're a waste of space. If Harry had not seen Dudley's lips move, he might not have believed it. As it was, he stared at Dudley for several seconds before accepting that it must have been his cousin who had spoken for one thing. Dudley had turned red. Harry was embarrassed and astonished himself. Well, er, thanks, Dudley. Again, Dudley appeared to grapple with the thoughts too unwieldy for expression before mumbling. You saved my life. Not really, said Harry. It was your soul the Dementor would have taken. He looked curiously at his cousin. They had had virtually no contact during the summer or last. As Harry had come back on Privet Drive so briefly and kept to his room so much, it now dawned on Harry, however, that the cup of cold tea on which he had trodden that morning might not have been a booby trap at all. Although rather touched, he was nevertheless, nevertheless quite relieved that Dudley appeared to have exhausted his ability to express his feelings. After opening his mouth once or twice more, 
Dudley subsided into scarlet-faced silence. Aunt Petunia burst into tears. Hestia Jones gave her an approving look that changed to outrage as Aunt Petunia ran forward and embraced Dudley rather than Harry. So sweet, Dudders! She sobbed into a massive chest. Such a sweet, lovely boy. Saying thank you. But he hasn't said thank you at all, said Estia indignantly. He only said he didn't think Harry was a waste of space. Yeah, but coming from Dudley, that's like I love you, said Harry, torn between annoyance and a desire to laugh at Aunt Petunia. Continued to clutch at Dudley as if he had just saved Harry from a burning building. Are we going or not? roared Uncle Vernon, reappearing yet again at the living room door. I thought we were on a tight schedule. Yes, yes, we are, said Dudley Esdigle, who had been watching this, these exchanges with an air of amusement and now seemed to pull himself together. We really must be off, Harry. He tripped forward and wrung Harry's hand with both of his own. Good luck. I hope we meet again. The hopes of the wizarding world rest upon your shoulders. Oh, said Harry. Right, thanks. Farewell, Harry, said Hestia, also clasping his hand. Our thoughts go with you. I hope everything's okay, said Harry with a glance toward Aunt Petunia and Dudley. Oh, I'm sure we shall end up the best of chums, said Diggle brightly. Waving his hat as his, he left the room, Hestia followed him. Dudley gently released himself from his mother's clutches and walked toward Harry, who had to repress an urge to threaten him with magic. Then Dudley held out his large pink hand. Blimey, Dudley, said Harry over Aunt Petunia's renewed sobs. Did the Dementors blow a different personality into you? Dunno, muttered Dudley. See you, Harry. Yeah, said Harry, taking Dudley's hand and shaking it. Maybe. Take care, Big D. Dudley nearly smiled, then lumbered from the room. Harry heard his heavy footfalls on the gravel drive, and then a car door slammed. Aunt Petunia, whose face had been buried in her handkerchief, looked around at the sound. She did not seem to have expected to find herself alone with Harry. Hastily stowing her wet handkerchief into her pocket, she said, Well, goodbye, and marched toward the door without looking at him. Goodbye, said Harry. She stopped and looked back. For a moment, Harry had the strangest feeling that she wanted to say something to him. She gave him an odd, tremulous look and seemed to teeter on the edge of speech, but then, with a little jerk of her head, she bustled out of the room after her husband and son. They actually are human. <laughs> it's surprising. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, man, it's... And I think what's funny is it's almost like almost from every book now, because uh, in this chapter, this one chapter here, almost we have, like, a full circle moment kind of thing from almost every single book and like the big one here i would say is dudley that was saved you know harry saved him from the dementors in my favorite book um book five order of the phoenix and it really you really never get to kind of come back to that in book six like it really doesn't focus on that as much and i guess we're always kind of left wondering but we don't think about it at all because there's so much going on like, how did that affect Dudley? Like, was Dudley changed after that for the rest of his life? My opinion now would be, obviously it affected him in a way to the point he cares a lot more about Harry 
and has a lot more respect for him and because he saved his life over it and it's a life-changing experience and clearly harry we don't know what the extent is of the relationship he had with aunt petunia of course as far as like how much she really cared and seeing like that backstory as far as maybe she did really care about him but you see like at least there was something there i guess it could have been just from it was you know her blood related nephew that she did even though she treated him very badly <laughs> like did see grow up and took care of him all these years what's your opinion on that don't really have much of an opinion on it like it was a cool chapter one of those ones that like you said it humanizes the dursleys it makes them you know not like you don't enjoy them but like you're like oh wow you know that's that's really nice especially when it comes to like uncle vernon was always kind of uncle vernon right he married aunt petunia so he actually had no relationship yeah. to harry before like like harry is petunia's blood relative and obviously dudley is part you know has aunt petunia's blood in him so they're kind of related in like a weird blood way right where like uncle vernon yeah. he just kind of came in and decided he, and he hates anything not normal <laughs> so like you know you know we were never going to get anything out of him like like it even said he wants to yeah. shake his hand and instead of like shaking it he just like put his arm there right we're getting out of here like <laughs> So, Goodbye. <laughs> uh, to me, I almost think like Aunt Petunia felt bad because remember like last time and in, in Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore sent her a howler saying like, you know, remember my last message, like make sure he stays here, keep him safe. And then obviously last book, Dumbledore goes in and basically makes the Dursleys feel like crap for how they treated Harry for his whole life. And now we're here without yeah. Dumbledore and Petunia's like, maybe I should say something, maybe not. But then we'll, we'll figure out more about Aunt Petunia later on. We're going to see kind of her grow up as a child, not to give anything away, mm-hmm. but we're going to get to see a little bit more about her as a kid and why she has certain feelings towards uh, Lily Potter and Harry subsequently from that. So, um, yeah. But yeah, dude, like obviously Dudley is very grateful that Harry saved his life because he very well easily just could have decided not to. It's like, he like mm-hmm. dude, you treated me like shit all your life. You know, any chance you got, you made you made me feel like I wasn't worthy of being alive half the time. And you know, instead of me just letting you die, I did the right thing. And Dudley's like, shit, like I was acting like a piece of shit. My bad. So yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those things. Like, and this is kind of a closure moment, right? That's more of anything. It's just closure right. because we don't really hear much from the Dursleys after this. Like that was it. Like honestly, we don't really they don't exactly. really come up much after after right now. Yeah. So yeah, that's all I thought Definitely. about. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to let you take it away from the next chapter, man. This is when we get into, you know, it's definitely intriguing, even in the first chapters. But now, like, think about it. We're only three chapters in, and it's about to get action-packed, edge of your seat, like, try not to breathe. (laughs) Like, try not to breathe. And uh, with that, I'm going to send it over to Jay Nelly, and he's going to take us from here for a good bit. Yeah, man. I mean, I just, honestly, chapter four in its entirety is all super important. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of kind of read it directly from the book. This is one of those. This is one of those times where this isn't bullet points material. This is let's see what happens. Let's go through like step by step because there's some it's some really great stuff in this chapter. So yeah. uh, Harry ran back upstairs to his bedroom, arriving at the window just in time to see the Dursleys' car swinging out of the drive and off up the road. Dedalus's top hat was visible between Aunt Petunia and Dudley in the back seat. The car turned right at the end of Perfect Drive, its windows burned scarlet for a moment in the now setting sun, and then it was gone. So Harry picked up Hagwood's cage, his firebolt, and his rucksack. 
gave his unnaturally tidy room one last sweeping look, then made his ungainly way back downstairs to the hall where he deposited his cage, broomstick, and bag near the foot of the stairs. Light was fading rapidly now, the hall full of shadows in the evening light. It felt most strange to stand here in the silence and know that he was about to leave the house for the last time. Long ago, when he had been left alone while the Dursleys went out to enjoy themselves, the hours of solitude had been a rare treat. Pausing only to sneak something tasty from the fridge, he had rushed upstairs to play on Dudley's computer, or put on the television and flicked through the channels to his heart's content. It gave him an odd, empty feeling to remember those times. It was like remembering a younger brother whom he had lost. Don't you want to take one last look at the place? He asked Hedwig, who was still sulking with her head in, under her wing. We'll never be here again. Don't you want to remember all the good times? I mean, look at this doormat. M memories. Dudley puked on it after I saved him from the Dementors. Turns out he was grateful after all. Can you believe it? And last summer, Dumbledore walked through that front door. And Harry lost the thread of his thoughts for a moment, and Hagrid did nothing to help him retrieve it, but continued to sit with her head under her wing. Harry turned back toward the front door. And under here, Hedwig, Harry pulled open a door under the stairs, is where I used to sleep. You never knew me then. Blimey, it's small. I'd forgotten. And Harry looked around at the stacked shoes and umbrellas, remembering how he used to wake every morning looking up at the underside of the staircase, which was far more often than not adorned with a spider or two. Those had been the days before he had known anything about his true identity, before he had found out how his parents had died, or why such strange things often happened to him. But Harry could still remember the dreams that had dogged him even in those days, confusing dreams involving flashes of green light, and once Uncle Vernon had nearly crashed the car when Harry had recounted it, a flying motorbike. There was a sudden deafening roar from somewhere nearby. Harry straightened up with a jerk and smacked the top of his head on the low doorframe. Pausing only to employ a few of Uncle Vernon's choicest swear words, he staggered back into the kitchen, clutching his head and stared out of the window into the back garden. Darkness seemed to be rippling, the air itself quivering, then one by one, figures began to pop into sight as their disillusionment charm was lifted. Dominating the scene was Hagrid, wearing a helmet and goggles and sitting astride an enormous motorbike with a black sidecar attached. All around him, other people were dismounting from brooms and, in two cases, skeletal black-winged horses. Wrenching open the back door, Harry hurtled into their midst. There was a general cry of greeting as Hermione flung her arms around him. Ron clapped him on the back, and Hagrid said, All right, Harry, ready for the off? Definitely, said Harry, beaming all around at them. But I wasn't expecting this many of you. Change of plan, growled Mad-Eye, who was holding two enormous bulging sacks and whose magical eye was spinning from the darkening sky to the house to the garden with dizzying rapidity. Let's get on a cover before we talk you through it. Harry led them all back into the kitchen, where... Laughing and chattering, they settled on chairs, sat themselves upon Ampetunia's gleaming work surfaces, or leaned up against her spotless appliances. Ron, long and lanky, Hermione, her bushy hair tied back in a long plait, Fred and George, grinning identically, Bill, badly scarred and long-haired, Mr. Weasley, kind-faced, balding, his spectacles a little awry, Mad-Eye, battle-worn, one-legged, his bright blue eye magically whizzing in his socket, Tonks, whose short hair was her favorite shade of bright pink, Lupin, grayer, more lined. Fleur, slender and beautiful with her long silvery blonde hair. Kingsley, bald, black, broad-shouldered. Hagrid, with his wild hair and beard, standing hunchbacked to avoid hitting his head on the ceiling. And Mundungus Fletcher, small, dirty, 
and hangdog with his droopy basset hound eyes and matted hair. Harry's heart seemed to expand and glow at the sight. He felt incredibly fond of all of them, even Mundungus, whom he had tried to strangle the last time they had met. Kingsley, I thought you were looking after the Muggle Prime Minister, he called across the room. He can get along without me for one night, said Kingsley. You're more important. Harry, guess what, said Tonks from her perch on top of the washing machine. She wiggled her left hand at him. A ring glittered there. You got married? Harry yelped, looking from her to Lupin. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, Harry. It was very quiet. That's brilliant. Congrat. All right, all right. We'll have time for a cozy catch-up later, roared Moody over the hubbub, and silence fell in the kitchen. Moody dropped his sacks, and his feet turned, and he looked at Harry. As Daedalus probably told you, we had to abandon plan, I plan A. Pious thickness has gone over, which gives us a big problem. He's made it an imprisonable offense to connect this house to the flute network, place a portkey here, or apparate in or out. All done in the name of your protection to prevent you-know-who getting at you. Absolutely pointless, seeing as your mother's charm does that already. What he's really done is stop you from getting out of here safely. Second problem. You're underage, which means you still have the trace on you. I don't- The trace! The trace! said Mad-Eye impatiently. This charm that detects magical activity around under-17s. The way the Ministry finds out about underage magic. If you or anyone around you cast a spell to get you out of here, Thickness is going to know about it, and so will the Death Eaters. We can't wait for the trace to break, because the moment you turn 17, you'll lose all protection your mother gave you. In short, Pious Thickness thinks he's got you cornered good and proper. Harry could not help but agree with the unknown Thickness. So what are we going to do? We're going to use the only means of transport left to us, the only ones the trace can't detect, because we don't need spells to cast and use them. Brooms, Destrils, and Hagrid's Motorbike. Harry could see flaws in this plan, however, he held his tongue to give Mad-Eye the chance to address them. Now, your mother's charm will only break under two conditions. When you come of age, or, Moody gestured around the pristine kitchen, you no longer call this place home. You and your aunt and uncle are going your separates tonight in the full understanding that you're never going to live together again, correct? Harry nodded. So this time when you leave, there'll be no going back, and the charm will break the moment you get outside its range. We're choosing to break it early because the alternative is waiting for you-know-who to come and seize you the moment you turn 17. The one thing we've got on our side is that you-know-who doesn't know we're moving you tonight. We've leaked a fake trail to the Ministry. They think you're not leaving until the 30th. However, this is you-know-who we're dealing with, so we can't just rely on him to get the date wrong. He's bound to have a couple of Death Eaters patrolling the skies in this general area just in case. So we're given, we're given about a dozen different houses every protection we can throw at them. They all look like they could be the place we're going to hide you. They've all got some connection with the Order. My house, Kingsley's place, Molly's Auntie Muriel's, you get the idea. Yeah, said Harry, not entirely truthfully, because he could still spot a gaping hole in the plan. You'll be going to Tonks' parents. Once you're within the boundaries of the protective enchantments we put on their house, you'll be able to use a port key to get to the burrow. Any questions? Uh, yes, said Harry. Maybe they know, won't know which of the twelve secure houses I'm heading for at first, but won't it be sort of obvious once he performed a quick head count? Fourteen of us fly towards Tonks' parents? Ah, said Moody, I forgot to mention the key point. Fourteen of us won't be flying to Tonks' parents. There will be seven Harry Potters moving through the skies tonight, each of them with a companion, each pair heading for a different safe house. From inside his cloak, 
Moody now drew a flask of what looked like mud. There was no need for him to say another word. Harry understood the rest of the plan immediately. No, he said loudly, his voice ringing in throughout the kitchen. No way. I told them that you'd take it like this, said Hermione with a hit of complacency. If you think I'm going to let six people risk their lives... Because it's the first time for all of us, said Ron. This is different. Pretending to be me. Well, none of us really fancy it, Harry, said Fred earnestly. Imagine if something went wrong and we were stuck as specky, scrawny gits forever. Harry did not smile. You can't do it if I don't cooperate. You need me to give you some hair. Well, that plan's scuppered, said George. Obviously, there's no chance at all of us getting a bit of your hair unless you cooperate. Yeah, 13 of us against one bloke who's not allowed to use magic. We've got no chance, said Fred. Funny, said Harry. Really amusing. If it has to come to force, then it will, growled Moody, his magical eye now quivering a little in its socket as he glared at Harry. Everyone here is overage, Potter, and they are all prepared to take the risk. Mundungus shrugged and grimaced. The magical eye swerved sideways to glare at him out of the side of Moody's head. Let's have no more arguments. Time's wearing on, and I want a few of your hairs, boy. Now. But this is mad. There's no need. No need, snarled Moody. With you-know-who out there and half the ministry on his side? Potter, if we're lucky, he'll have swallowed the fake bait, and he'll be planning to ambush you on the 30th. But he'd be mad not to have a death eater or two keeping an eye out. That's what I'd do. They might not be able to get to you at this house while you're under your mom's charm holds, but it's about to break, and they know the rough position of the place. Our only chance is to use decoys. Even you-know-who can't split himself into seven. Harry caught Hermione's eye and they looked away at once. So, Potter, some of your hair, if you please. Harry glanced at Ron, who grimaced at him in a just-do-it sort of way. Now, barked Moody. With all of their eyes upon him, Harry reached up top to his head and grabbed a yank of hair and pulled. Good, said Moody, limping forward as he pulled the stopper out of the flask of potion. Straight in here, if you please. Harry dropped his hair into the mud-like liquid. The moment it made content with the surface, the potion began to froth and smoke, and then all at once it turned to clear, bright gold. Ooh, you look much tastier than crab and goyle, Harry, said Hermione before catching a sight of Ron's raised eyebrow, blushing slightly and saying, oh, you know what I mean. Goyle's potion looked like a bunch of bogeys. Right then, fake potters, line up over here, please, said Moody. Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, and Fleur lined up in front of Aunt Petunia's gleaming sink. Or one short. Here, said Haggard gruffly, and he lifted Mundungus by the scruff of the neck and dropped him down beside Fleur, who wrinkled her nose pointedly and moved along to stand between Fred and George instead. I told you I'd sooner be your protector, said Mundungus. Shut it, growled Moody, as I've already told you, you spineless worm. Any Death Eaters we run into will be aiming to capture Potter, not kill him. Dumbledore has always said you know who would want to finish Potter in person. It'll be the protectors who have got the most to worry about. The Death Eaters will want to kill them. Mundungus did not look particularly reassured, but Moody was already pulling out a half a dozen egg cup sized glasses from inside his cloak, which he handed out before pouring a little polyjuice potion into each one. All together then? Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, Fleur, and Mundungus drank. All of them gasped and grimaced as the potion hit their throats, and at once their features began to bubble and distort like hot wax. Hermione and Mundungus were shooting upward, Fred, Ron, and George were shrinking, their hair was darkening, Hermione's and Fleur's appearing to shoot backwards into their skull. Moody, quite unconcerned, was now loosening the ties of the large sacks he had brought with him. 
When he straightened up again, there were six Harry Potters gasping and panting in front of him. Fred and George turned to each other and said together, Wow, we're identical! I don't know, though. I think I'm still better looking, said Fred, examining his reflection in the kettle. Bah, said Fleur, checking herself in the microwave door. Bill, don't look at me. I'm idiots. Those who clothes are a bit roomy, I've got smaller here, said Moody, indicating the first sack, and vice versa. Don't forget the glasses. There's six pairs in the side pocket, and when you're dressed, there's luggage in the other sack. The real Harry thought this might have been the most bizarre thing he'd ever seen, and he had seen some extremely odd things. He watched as his six doppelgangers rummaged in the sacks, pulling out sets of clothes, putting on glasses, stuffing their own things away. He felt like asking them to show a little more respect for his privacy as they all began stripping him down with impunity, clearly much more at ease with displaying his body than they would have been with their own. I knew Ginny was lying about that tattoo, said Ron, looking down at his bare chest. Harry, your eyesight is really awful, said Hermione as she put on glasses. Once dressed, the fake Harrys took rucksacks and owl cages, each containing a stuffed snowy owl from the second sack. Good, said Moody, as at last seven dressed, bespeckled, and luggage-laden Harrys faced him. The pairs will be as follows. Bundungus, you'll be traveling with me, by broom. Why am I with you, grunted the Harry nearest to the back door. Because you're the one that needs watching, growled Moody, and sure enough, his magical eye did not waver from Mundungus as he continued. Arthur and Fred? I'm George, said the twin at whom Moody was pointing. Can't you even tell us apart when we're Harry? Sorry, George. I'm only aching your wand. I'm Fred, really. Enough messing around, snarled Moody. The other one, George or Fred or whoever you are, you're with Remus. Miss Delacour? I'm taking Fleur on a Thestro, said Bill. She's not that fond of brooms. Fleur walked over to stand beside him, giving a sloppy, slavish look that Harry hoped with all his heart would never appear on his face again. Miss Granger with Kingsley, again by Thestro. Hermione looked reassured as she answered Kingsley's smile. Harry knew that Hermione, too, lacked confidence on a broomstick. Which leaves you and me, Ron, said Tonks brightly, knocking over a mug tree as she waved at him. Ron did not look quite as pleased as Hermione. And you're with me, Harry. Is that all right? Said Hagrid, looking a little anxious. We'll be on the bike. Brooms and thresholds can't take my weight, you see. Not a lot of room on the seat with me in it, though, so you'll be in the sidecar. That's great, said Harry, not altogether truthfully. We think the Death Eaters will expect you to be on broom, said Moody, who seemed to guess how Harry was feeling. Snape's had plenty of time to tell them everything about you he's never mentioned before. So if we do run it into any Death Eaters, we're betting they'll choose one of the potters who look at home on a broomstick. All right, then, he went on, tying up the sack with the fake potters, clothes in it, and leading the way to the back door. I make it three minutes until we're supposed to leave. No point locking the back door. It won't keep the Death Eaters out when they come looking. Come on. Harry hurried into the hall to fetch his rucksack, firebolt, and Hedwig's cage before joining the others in the dark back garden. On every side, broomsticks were leaping into hands. Hermione had already been helped up to a great black thestral by Kingsley. Fleur on to the other by Bill. Hagrid was standing ready beside his motorbike with goggles on. Is this it? Is this Sirius's bike? The very same, said Hagrid, beaming down at Harry. And the last time you were on it, Harry, I could fit you in one hand. Harry could not help but feel a little humiliated as he got into the sidecar. It placed him several feet below everybody else. Ron smirked at the sight of him sitting there like a child in a bumper car. 
and Harry stuffed his rucksack and broom down by his feet and rammed Hedwig's cage between his knees. It was extremely uncomfortable. Arthur has done a bit of tinkering, said Hagrid, quite oblivious to Harry's discomfort. He settled himself astride the motorcycle, which creaked slightly and sank inches into the ground. It's got a few tricks up its handlebars now. That one was my idea, and he pointed a thick finger at a purple button near the speedometer. Please be careful, Hagrid, said Mr. Weasley, who was standing at beside them holding his broomstick. I'm still not sure what that was advisable, and it's certainly only to be used in emergencies. All right, then, said Moody. Everyone ready, please? I want us all to leave at the exact same moment, or the whole point of the diversion's lost. Everybody mounted their brooms. Hold tight now, Ron, said Tonks, and Ron saw, Harry saw Ron throw a furtive, guilty look at Lupin before placing his hands on either side of her waist. Hagrid kicked the motorbike into life, and it roared like a dragon. The sidecar began to vibrate. Good luck, everyone. See you all in about an hour at the burrow. On the count of three. One, two, three. There was a great roar from the motorbike, and Harry felt the sidecar give a nasty lurch. He was rising through the air fast, his eyes watering slightly, his hair whipped back off his face. Around him, brooms were soaring upward too. The long black tail of a thestral flicked past. His legs, jammed into the sidecar by Hedwig's cage and his rucksack, were already sore and starting to go numb. So great was his discomfort that he almost forgot to take a last glimpse of number four privet drive, and by the time he looked over the edge of the sidecar, he could no longer tell which one it was. Higher and higher, they climbed into the sky. And then out of nowhere, out of nothing, they were surrounded. At least thirty hooded figures suspended in midair formed a vast circle in the midst of which the Order members had risen, oblivious. Screams, a blaze of green light on every side. Hagrid gave a yell and the motorbike rolled over. Harry lost any sense of where they were. Streetlights above him, yells around him, he was clinging to the sidecar for dear life. Hedwig's cage, the firebolt, and his rucksack slipped from beneath his knees. No, Hedwig! The broomstick spun to earth, but he just managed to seize the strap of his rucksack and the top of the cage as the motorbike swung the right way up again. A second's relief, and then another burst of green light. The owl screeched and fell to the floor of the cage. No! No! The motorbike zoomed forward. Harry glimpsed the hooded Death Eaters scattering as Hagrid blasted through their circle. Hedwig! Hedwig! But the owl lay motionless and as pathetic as a toy on the floor of her cage. Harry could not take it in, and his terror for the others were paramount. He glanced over his shoulder and saw a mass of people moving. Flares of green light. Two pairs of people on brooms soaring off into the distance. But he could not tell who they were. Hagrid, we've got to go back. We've got to go back, he yelled over the thunderous roar of the engine. Pulling out his wand, ramming Hedwig's cage onto the floor, refusing to believe that she was dead. Hagrid, turn around! My job's to get you there safely, Harry, bellowed Hagrid, and he opened up the throttle. Stop! Stop! Harry shouted, but as he looked back again, two jets of green light flew past his left ear. Four Death Eaters had broken away from the circle and were pursuing him, aiming for Hagrid's broad back. Hagrid swerved, but the Death Eaters were keeping up with the bike. More curses shot after them, and Harry had to sink low into the sidecar to avoid them. Wriggling around, he cried, Stupefy! And a, bolt of, a red bolt of light shot upwards from his wand, cleaving a gap between the four pursuing Death Eaters as they scattered to avoid it. Hold on, Harry! This'll do it for him, roared Hagrid, and Harry looked up just in time to see Hagrid slamming a thick finger onto the green button near the fuel gauge. A wall, a solid brick wall, erupted out of the exhaust pipe. Craning his neck, Harry saw it expand into being in midair. Three of the Death Eaters swerved and avoided it, but the fourth was not so lucky. He vanished from view and then dropped like a boulder from behind it, his broomstick broken into pieces. One of his fellows slowed up to save him, but they and the airborne wall were swallowed by darkness as Hagrid leaned low over the handlebars and sped up. More killing curses flew past Harry's head, 
from the two remaining Death Eaters' wands. They were aiming for Hagrid. Harry responded with further stunning spells. Red and green collided in midair in a shower of multicolored sparks, and Harry thought wildly of fireworks and the muggles below who would have no idea what was happening. Here we go again, Harry. Hold on, yelled Hagrid, and he jabbed at a second button. This time, a, gre a great net burst from the bike's exhaust, but the Death Eaters were ready for it. Not only did they serve to avoid it, but the companion who had slowed to save their unconscious friend had caught up. He bloomed suddenly out of the darkness, and now three of them were pursuing the motorbike, all shooting curses after it. This'll do it, Harry. Hold on tight, Hagrid yelled, and Harry saw him slam his whole hand onto the purple button beside the speedometer. With an unmistakable bellowing roar, dragonfire burst from the white-hot exhaust and blew, and the motorcycle shot forward like a bullet with the sound of wrenching metal. Harry saw the Death Eaters swerve out of sight to avoid the deadly trail of flame, and at the same time, he felt the sidecar sway ominously. Its metal connections to the bike had splintered with the force of acceleration. It's all right, Harry, bellowed Hagrid, who was now thrown flat onto his back by the surge of speed. Nobody was steering now, and the sidecar was starting to twist violently in the bike's slipstream. I'm on it, Harry. Don't worry, Hagrid yelled, and from inside his jacket pocket, he pulled out his flowery pink umbrella. Hagrid, no, let me! Reparo! And there was a deafening bang, and the sidecar broke away from the bike completely. Harry sped forward, propelled by the impetus of the bike's flight. Then the sidecar began to lose height. In desperation, Harry pointed his wand at the sidecar and shouted, Wingardium Leviosa! And the sidecar rose like a cork, unsteerable, but at least still airborne. And he had about a split second's relief, however, as more curses streaked past him. The three Death Eaters were closing in. I'm coming, Harry! Harry had from the darkness, but Harry could feel the sidecar beginning to sink again. Crouching as low as he could, he pointed at the middle of the oncoming figures and yelled, Impedimenta! And the jinx hit the middle Death Eater in the chest. For a moment, the man was absurdly spread-eagled in midair, as though he had hit an invisible barrier. One of his fellows almost collided with him. Then the sidecar began to fall in earnest, and the remaining Death Eater shot a curse so close to Harry that he had to duck below the rim of the car, knocking out a tooth on the edge of his seat. I'm coming, Harry, I'm coming. A huge hand seized the back of Harry's robes and hoisted him out of the plummeting sidecar. Harry pulled his rucksack with him as he dragged himself onto the motorbike seat and found himself back to back with Hagrid. As they soared upwards away from the two remaining Death Eaters, Harry spat blood out of his mouth, pointed his wand at the following sidecar, and yelled, Confringo! And he knew a dreadful gut-wrenching pang for Hedwig as it exploded. The Death Eater nearest was blasted off his broom and fell from sight. His companion fell back and vanished. Harry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, moaned Hagrid. I shouldn't have tried to repair it myself. You've got no room. It's not a problem. Just keep flying, Harry shouted back as two more Death Eaters emerged out of the darkness, drawing closer. As the curses came shooting across the intervening space again, Hagrid swerved and zigzagged. Harry knew that Hagrid did not dare use the dragon fire button again with Harry seated so insecurely. So Harry sent stunning spell after stunning spell back at their pursuers, barely holding them off. He shot another blocking jinx at them. Then the closest Death Eater swerved to avoid it and his hood slipped. And by the red light of his next stunning spell, Harry saw the strangely blank face of Stanley Shunpike. Stan. Expelliarmus! Harry yelled. That's him! It's him! It's the real one! The hooded Death Eater's shout reached Harry even above the thunder of the motorbike's engine. Next moment, both pursuers had fallen back and disappeared from view. Harry, what's happened? bellowed Hagrid. Where have they gone? I don't know, but Harry was afraid. The hooded Death Eater shouted, It's the real one! How had he known? He gazed around at the apparently empty darkness and felt its menace. Where were they? He clambered around on the seat to face forward and seized the hold of the back of Hagrid's jacket. 
Hagrid, do the fire dragon fire thing again. Let's get out of here. Hold on tight then, Harry. And there was a deafening, screeching roar, and the white-blue fire shot from the exhaust. Harry felt himself slipping backwards off what, of the little seat that he had. Hagrid flung backward upon him, barely maintaining the grip on the handlebars. I think we've lost him, Harry. I think we've done it, yelled Hagrid. But Harry was not convinced. Fear lapped into him as he looked left and right for pursuers he was sure would come. Why had they fallen back? One of them still had a wand. It's him. It's the real one. They had said it right after he had tried to disarm Stan. We're nearly there, Harry. We've nearly made it, shouted Hagrid. Harry felt the bike drop a little, though the lights down on the ground seemed as still as remote as stars. Then the scar on his forehead burned like fire. As a Death Eater appeared on either side of the bike, two killing curses missed Harry by millimeters cast from behind. And then Harry saw him. Voldemort was flying like smoke on the wind without a broomstick or a thestral to hold him, his snake-like face gleaming out of the blackness, his white fingers raising his wand again. Hagrid let out a bellow of fear and steered the motorbike into a vertical dive. Clinging for, on for dear life, Harry sent stunning spells flying at random into the whirling night. He saw a body fly past him and he knew he had hit one of them. But then he heard a bang and saw sparks fall from the engine and the motorbike spiraled through the air completely out of control. Green jets of light shot past them again. Harry had no idea which way was up, which way was down. His scar was still burning. He expected to die at any second. A hooded figure on a broomstick was feet from him when he saw it raise its arm. No! With a shout of fury, Hagrid launched himself off the bike at the Death Eater. And to his horror, Harry saw both Hagrid and the Death Eater falling out of sight, their combined weight too much for the broomstick. Barely gripping the plummeting bike with his knees, Harry heard Voldemort scream, Mine! It was over. He could not see or hear where Voldemort was. And he glimpsed another Death Eater swooping out of the way and heard, Avada! And as the pain from Harry's scar forced his eyes shut, his wand acted of its own accord. He felt it drag his hand around like some great magnet, saw a spurt of golden fire through his half-closed eyelids, heard a crack and a scream of fury. The remaining Death Eaters yelled. Voldemort screamed, No! Somehow, Harry found his nose an inch from the dragonfire button. He punched it with his wand-free hand, and the bike shot more flames in the air, hurtling straight toward the ground. Hagrid! Harry called, holding on to the bike for dear life. Hagrid! Accio Hagrid! The motorbike sped up, sucked toward the earth. Face level with the handlebars, Harry could see nothing but distant lights growing nearer and nearer. He was going to crash, and there was nothing he could do about it. Behind him came another screen. Your wand, Selwyn! Give me your wand! He felt Voldemort before he saw him. Looking sideways, he stared into the red eyes and was sure they would be the last thing he ever saw. Voldemort preparing to curse him once more. And then Voldemort vanished. Harry looked down and saw Hagrid spread-eagled on the ground below him. He pulled hard at the handlebars to avoid hitting him, groping for the break, but with an ear-splitting, ground-trembling crash, he smashed into a muddy pond. And that was chapter four, The Seven Potters. So as you can tell by my breathless voice here, there was a lot of action, a lot of stuff going on in a short amount of time so early on in the book. Chapter four out of the whole book, and all, all of a sudden we've got Death Eaters attacking Harry in midair trying to find the real one. There's a couple things in here that were interesting to me. Some I'll save for later on in this episode when we get to other sections but since I just read that Chase I want you to give me your thoughts and takeaways about what you just heard yeah 
I mean, the I think the first time I read this, I even remember reading this in high school at the pool when I read this part. Like, the fact that Voldemort can fly, <laughs> like, just flies out of thin air, which we get explained a little more later on, but that was definitely shocking. Like, I don't know how you can even prepare for that. Like, they, I feel like they tried every avenue here and got screwed. This is what happened. Like, I mean, think about it. They tried every possible move to make sure everything went right. And everything went entirely wrong from the beginning. Like, the minute they were in the air, they were surrounded. Um, and, of course, I I got to say, like, the like I feel like it could have been so good on screen. Like, Hagrid, like, jumping onto, like, that Death Eater and then falling towards the ground. Uh, I don't know what the whole deal is with describing everyone as spread eagle. But, but I mean, I guess you just, that's the best way to describe it. But, um, it, it's just, it's one, it's like you said, like, it's one of those action packed moments, but it's almost like they're playing chess here. Um, because it's like they're trying to outsmart Voldemort's people, but then what basically happened was they almost outsmarted their own self. Um, and it wound up literally they were they were just screwed really either way is what it came down to um which luckily they did have the protection in place of all the order members um and everyone was able could you imagine if like they had just sent like this wouldn't have happened but what if it was like what was his name uh diddly and heist (laughs) that like took the Dursleys, if it was them two, Harry would have been screwed. <laughs> like, oh, Daedalus they, Diggle and Hestia Jones? Daedalus, yeah, Daedalus and Heist or something. Like, I mean, thank the Lord, like, you know, you had everyone there. You had Kingsley, you had Mad Eye Moody, you had Hagrid, um, you know, you had Lupin, you had Tonks. I mean, it's George, Fred, Arthur, all of them are there. Like, all the big dogs are there. Um, and it's still bad like it's still like you're you're barely hanging in there right now like you're barely hanging in there and the stanley shunpike like that was another big shocker for me like talk about another full circle moment like remember we've been hearing about him in passing every now and then like hey they you know he could possibly have the imperious curse and we've been hearing about it in past books and finally here it is like it's we're hit with so much action so much uh, full circle moments that are bridging the gaps now. It, I mean, of course, there's a lot of questions to play, but at the same, as far as like action goes, it just keeps you on the edge of your seat. I, I thought it was an it's an excellent chapter in my opinion. What about you, man? Yeah. So for me, like it, it was screwed from the get go because we knew that Snape knew about the plan and Snape told Voldemort, so like they already knew what was going to happen. The Death Eaters were ready for it. Like it didn't matter what they did. Like whether they went with the original plan, which was side along apparition with Moody, mm-hmm. to the second plan, which is like, hey, we had to do a, like an audible because Pious Thickness is now actually under the control of the Death Eaters. So we're gonna do this plan instead of the Polyjuice Potion. Like didn't matter. They because we're gonna figure out later on where Snape got his information from. But Snape knew when they were being moved, and that's yeah. you know he told them, and that's where they try to take him in the air. And the biggest thing like. It didn't matter who was with the order because they were outnumbered two to one. They, there was like they called it the seven Potters and the seven Protectors. That's fourteen. 
you guys remember there, he said 30 Death Eaters surround him. They were outnumbered two to one, man. Like, so it didn't really matter, like, how it was going to go. And plus, Voldemort himself was there. So, uh, it was it was going to go all bad from the jump. Like, they were very lucky it turned out the way that it did. You know, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, obviously, I've got some questions about certain things, and we I'll save for a different section of this episode. But in terms of just action-packed moments, like, I loved it. It was almost like... You know, it was high stakes Quidditch, baby. Like, you know, like when I read those awesome things, like, you know, like we had to figure out like living and dying. Hedwig's now gone. Hedwig's been with us since that was the first gift Hagrid ever got Harry. And she was just like an innocent bystander in a cage. And like, what was the point? Like, like J.K. Rowling kind of set us up like with a happiness just to turn it back into misery when like it almost slipped through Harry's hands and he grabbed it before it turned upside down that he's like sweet he saved Hedwig and all of a sudden boom another flash of green light boom and Hedwig's neck like yeah. damn man like, oh, you couldn't let us have that moment shit and then on top of that like <laughs> like Harry loses his firebolt something that Siri like Sirius's first gift to Harry uh, after breaking out of Azkaban so he loses his firebolt there too so that spun down to earth so you know, we lost a fireball, lost Hedwig, almost lost. You know, we're gonna figure out what happens to Hagrid and the rest. What happens to the rest of the people who are there too? But man, oh, you get hit right off the, you get punched in the mouth right off the jump here, chapter four, and like <laughs> we're losing people, man. Like this is crazy. Like it was really one of the most fun chapters to read through. This is one of the ones that make these stories so much fun and interesting. You know, just to like lead up to the psychology of it of. I know this plan, but I know you know this plan, so I'm going to change this plan, but I know that you're going to change this plan. It's like playing chess all over the board, like you said. Like, it's just, it was Literally. wild, and then all of a sudden, the action on top of that is really cool, too. So, that's kind of my, my last thoughts on, on that chapter before we kind of get into the last chapter that we'll cover today in Chapter 5. So, yeah, man, it was just really, really cool, very action-packed, very exciting, and I liked reading it out loud. I'm glad I got to do that. <laughs> yeah. I want to know who the fuck their Tyrion Lannister is that keeps fucking up all these plans. Like, every time they do something, they get their ass kicked. The only reason I feel like they even did somewhat okay was because, thank the Lord, they had Hagrid, and they had George, and Fred, and Arthur. Basically, everyone that has not been with the Order. If it was with, like, Tonks and Lupin, I feel like they would have got their ass kicked. Just, there would be no hope. There would be no hope. Luckily, we have some uh, some survivors because I feel like at least Hagrid, like he's always shown, like can kick some ass here, here and there. It makes this big sacrifice. But who is their advisor that is the Tyrion Lannister that keeps fucking up these plans, man? Like, who is Well, you know, Snape, Snape, we know Snape's the one that knows. Snape's the one that told Voldemort. He knows when Harry was going to be moved. But no, I mean, who gave Snape the information? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Who gave Snape the information? Yeah. That's and we're gonna yeah. find that out later on. That's something that we learn later there on in the go. book. Yeah. But yeah. But it's still yeah. It's like you know because you're gonna see who they think that they're gonna blame for him making an accident when that's actually not what happens. Like people, you're gonna see here in the next coming chapters of who the order thinks it might have been who gave up Harry's uh, plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really sad that they blame him because like the you know, well, I don't want to give it away. We'll, we'll He's always it. been a piece of shit. <laughs> Hagrid? Hagrid is not. Oh no, no, sorry, no, just, no, no, no! I'm sorry, I just bogus. ruined. This. Well, <laughs> spoilers. But anyways, uh, <laughs> My <bad>. Hagrid. <laughs> they 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 blame Hagrid for like because they they think because he gave you know that one guy the information how to get past Fluffy for exchange for the dragon. They think Hagrid Hagrid's like careless. 
they think it's because he had mentioned yeah. something to the wrong person so but yeah i didn't want to give that up but then when you said piece of shit i was like no one thinks Sega's a piece of shit so we got ahead to we had to, i had to improvise and kind of give up who they think it is but i have to get into it anyways but yeah, yeah it's not so. exactly revealed but i mean if it, it is in the book one in the group it is absolutely in the book later on it's just not right now well my point so. is if you can pick out one of the pieces of the pie that never really fit in with that group who has it been that we've been hearing about from the beginning that he fucking was stealing shit last book he ditches his posts like you can pretty much realize there's a reason moody over here was like you're riding with me (laughs) you're riding with me that was my point i was making uh but we'll get to that when we get to it uh back to you man Cool. All right. So yeah, you want me to jump into the next chapter? I guess we can go into chapter yeah, five, the the fallen warrior. Cool. Uh, just a couple bullet points that I kind of have before taken into a. Well, here's the other thing too, and with the chapter four, there's a couple more things I wanted to mention too. Like the big, like there's like maybe five or six real big takeaways, right? The order knows that pious thickness is now under death to control. That's gonna come up big, not this episode, but next one. Like having them have a high ranking official underneath the death eaters control the order knows it though so it's like again we're playing this this chess baby it's like that uh what's it sherlock versus moriarty like we got like these people playing chess against each other then uh yeah like like i already mentioned these two things but harry harry loses his firebolt hedwig hedwig is killed um i thought it was kind of cool we saw this confringo spell for the first time and he blew up hedwig he blew up the sidecar with Hedwig, hedwig in it but I guess that's oh, cool. a better than, you know, just letting her fall to the ground and forgetting about her, not going back for her. So <laughs> I guess that was kind of like the uh, Viking funeral, if you so, if, if you will. Yeah. So uh, Harry yeah. used that. But we never seen that spell before, Confringo. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then the last thing, the one that's probably most important, the big takeaway, is Harry's wand acts of its own accord and uses this weird spell that we've never seen. Yep. He uses, it erupts golden flames and it actually breaks Lucius's wand. That's why you hear Voldemort yelling, Selwyn, give me your wand. Like, I need your wand. So that was actually the real big takeaway is that there's this weird spell and like Harry's wand just kind of acted on its own with these golden flames and stuff. So that was a big takeaway there. So yes, but going on from there, I'll go ahead and, and jump into chapter five a bit. But, you know, they crash into Tonks' parents' garden and Hagrid's still unconscious. So we don't know like if Hagrid's alive or dead, if he made it through and... You know, finally, Harry kind of succumbs to, like, everything that happens, too, and he passes out. So, uh, it turns out, like, in a couple, whatever, maybe an hour or a minute, however long it is, he wakes up, and we find out Ted... So, Tonks' parents' name... Well, his dad's name is Ted Tonks. I'm going to save kind of figuring out about the mom just for a second, because there's a crazy moment that happens between Harry and uh, Tonks' mom, because she looks like somebody else. So... Uh, but anyways, Ted Tonks ends up fixing Harry's ribs, tooth, and arm. Uh, that's important because, honestly, when I read this as a kid, I kind of, like, glossed over the fact that Harry sustained, like, pretty major injuries. Remember, he knocked out his tooth on the sidecar. He wanted to duck yeah. underneath it. And then, like, obviously him crashing from the sky into the ground on a motorbike. Yeah, it probably did some damage to his body. <laughs> so, yes, like, he fixed his ribs, tooth, and arm. Uh, and then on page 65, this is what I was talking about, uh, Tonks' mom walks into the room and Harry like almost it grows to his wand and almost attacks her because she draws such a striking resemblance to Bellatrix Lestrange, and the yeah. reason why that's important is because that's the sister that they were talking about. It's like when in the beginning, this is that full circle moment at the table with Voldemort. He said, "Hey, you know your niece 
meaning Andromeda mm-hmm. is their sister. So it's Bellatrix, Narcissa, and Andromeda. So Andromeda is Tonks' mom. So that's why I say your sister, her niece is getting married. So that makes Tonks Bellatrix's niece. And we're about to kind of learn a little bit about what happens in the sky from there. But, yeah, Harry reaches for his wand to attack Andromeda because he mistakes her for Bellatrix. I thought that was pretty important. But um, Harry kind of tells Ted and Andromeda that they don't know what happened to the others because everything kind of happened so fast. There was a big... Like, like, as soon as they got into the sky, like Chase said, all of a sudden it just erupted. Like, it was just there. Like, it wasn't, there was yeah. no, like, gradually leading into danger. It was like, one, two, three, off in the sky, boom, we're surrounded by Death Eaters. Like, whoa. <laughs> so, like, they had no idea, like, where to look for where everyone else was going and stuff. So, like, nobody really had any idea. And uh, page 67, I thought it was pretty cool that the small silverback hairbrush was the port key that they used to take to the burrow. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, page 67... There is also a, a little spot here where I thought was important. Um, I would, it's, I'm going to read from... Let me go ahead and grab it here on page 67. This is... Let's see here. All right. So wait a moment, said Hagrid looking around. Harry, where's Hedwig? She she got hit, said Harry. And the realization crashed over him. He felt ashamed of himself as the tears stung his eyes. The owl had been his companion, his one great link with the magical world whenever he had been forced to return to the Dursleys. And Hagrid reached out her great hand and patted him painfully on the shoulder. Never mind, he said gruffly, never mind. She had a great old life. So I wanted to read that because that's, that's heavy on two ways. Number one, you see the kind of connection that Harry had with Hedwig and how every time he came back from Hogwarts, that was his one link to the magical world. So they have developed a special bond. It's almost like if you have a dog, it's, and like, it's not just a family dog. Let's see... Like, let's say you move out of your house and you get your own apartment for the first time and you get your own dog and it's solely yours and it's your responsibility to take care of. You draw a special connection with that dog because it is your responsibility. It's something that's there and it's your companion. So this is kind of the way Hedwig is viewed by Harry. But the twofold way of why it's heavy is because you guys remember, Hagrid's the one that gave Hedwig to Harry as his first birthday present when he turned 11. So in Hagrid asking about him and Harry having to tell Hagrid... Like, yeah, she got killed. She got hit by the killing curse. Just sat on two ways. I also think it's kind of funny that... I don't know. I mean, I guess I should ask Chase this because he's the owl guy. I don't know how oh, old God. owls <laughs> usually live. I don't, I don't know how old owls usually live to. But, like, I don't feel like six years old. Is that old? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it is for owls. I, I didn't do the proper owl research. Chase is our owl guy here. So I just... Uh, I don't know why Hagrid said she lived a good old life. I'm like, I don't really know, man, because let's say she was like a year or two old when you got her when Harry turned 11. So that would at, at most make her eight to nine years old, right? So like, is that really old for an owl? I don't know. Chase with the, Chase my owl guy, how, how old do owls usually live to be? So it actually says here, I looked it up as you were saying that, on average owls in the wild I feel like I'm on National Geographic right now (laughs) during mating season. (laughs) And it's that time of year when the owls break out of their cage. Anyways, on average, it says in the wild they live around 9 to 10 years. Oh, I guess maybe that does make sense then. Yeah, Yeah, I was figuring like something like 16 years or something. Yeah, that's weird. Because, like, parrots? Those fucking parrots live, like, 99 years old. Like, what the hell is up with that? That's That's what I'm saying. I figured, like, Uh, I figured anywhere from, like, 15 to 20 years. Oh, sorry. It says, though, 
um not to interrupt you but it says owls that are kept away from the wild that are uh nurtured i guess it says owls in captivity can live up to 28 years so i guess right but it says around nine to ten years so i don't know maybe that's just because they get attacked a lot i guess probably but like let's look up a parrot real quick malice in the chalice looking up the lifespan of a parrot <laughs> i'm throwing the it malice in the chalice card parrot average age everyone here's this is interesting a parrot average age can live up to 80 years isn't that interesting you would think like somewhat of birds they would have like right. some sort of consistency there but I like agree how you. you know dogs cats right but no 80 years for a parrot and an owl is nine to ten owls got the short end of the stick with that uh malice in the chalice off to the shadow realm man <laughs> I, I will say, say this though shocking because i know that you said they last nine to ten years in the wild but hedwig wasn't in the wild hedwig was in captivity so yeah like you would expect her to live long. You said about 28 years on average for owls in mm -hmm. captivity or ones that are domesticated. So the fact that yeah. he would say, like, live to an old age, I don't know. It just was interesting. I'm glad that we did that, though. That was a little, little tidbit of information for the for the people out there. So, yeah. yeah Shout I out thought to, that was pretty uh, cool, though. Yeah, sorry. Shout out to Kennesaw State, my old uh, bachelor college. We were the fighting owls. So uh, throw that out there for you guys. Yeah, go owls. Hootie hoot. <laughs> Said off go to Jay Nelly. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Then yeah. Then what I'll do is I'll just kind of take this rest of it here on page sixty-seven through. Um, going through, it said Hagrid said Tonks Ted Tonks warningly as a hairbrush glowed bright blue, and Hagrid just only got his finger to it in time. With a jerk behind the navel, as though an invisible hook and line had dragged him forward, Harry was pulled into nothingness, spinning uncontrollably. His finger glued to the porky as he and Hagrid hurtled away from Mister Tonks. Seconds later, Harry's feet slammed into hard ground as he fell onto his hands and knees in the yard of the burrow. He heard screams. Throwing aside the no longer glowing hairbrush, Harry stood up, swaying slightly, and saw Mrs. Weasley and Ginny running down the steps by the back door as Hagrid, who had also collapsed on landing, clambered laboriously to his feet. Harry! You are the real Harry! What happened? Where are the others? cried Mrs. Weasley. What do you mean? Isn't anyone else back yet? Harry panted. The answer was clearly etched into Mrs. Weasley's pale face. The Death Eaters were waiting for us, Harry told her. We were surrounded the moment we took off. They knew it was tonight. I don't know what happened to anyone else. Four of them chased us. It was all we could do to get away. Then Voldemort caught up with us, and he could hear the self-justifying note in his voice, the plea for her to understand why he did not know what happened to her sons. But thank goodness you're all right, she said, pulling him into a hug he did not feel he deserved. Haven't got any brandy, have you, Molly? Asked Hagrid a little shakily. For uh, medicinal purposes? She could have summoned it by magic, but as she hurried back towards the crooked house, Harry knew that she wanted to hide her face. He turned to Ginny, and she answered his unspoken plea for information at once. Ron and Tonks should have been the first back, but they missed their port key. It came back without them, she said, pointing at a rusty oil can lying on the ground nearby. And that one, she pointed at an ancient sneaker, should have been Dad and Fred's. They were supposed to be second. You and Hagrid were third, and, she checked her watch, if they made it, George and Lupin ought to be back in about a minute. 
Mrs. Weasley reappeared carrying a bottle of brandy which she handed to Hagrid. He uncorked it and drank it straight down in one. <laughs> Mom, shouted Ginny, pointing to a several spot, spot several feet away. A blue light had appeared in the darkness. It grew larger and brighter. Lupin and George appeared, spinning and then falling. Harry knew immediately that there was something wrong. Lupin was supporting George, who was unconscious and whose face was covered in blood. Harry ran forward and seized George's legs. Together, he and Lupin carried George into the house and through the kitchen to the sitting room where they laid him on the sofa. As the lamplight fell across George's head, Ginny gasped and Harry's stomach lurched. One of George's ears was missing. The side of his head and neck were drenched in wet, shockingly scarlet blood. No sooner had Mrs. Weasley bent over her son than Lupin grabbed Harry by the upper arm dragged him none too gently back into the kitchen where Hagrid was still attempting to ease his bulk through the back door. Oi! said Hagrid indignantly. Let go of him! Let go of Harry! Lupin ignored him. What creature sat in the corner the first time that Harry Potter visited my office at Hogwarts? He said, giving Harry a small shake. Answer me! Uh, a, a grindy low in the tank, wasn't it? Lupin released Harry and fell back against the kitchen cupboard. What was that about? roared Hagrid. I'm sorry, Harry, but I had to check, said Lupin tersely. We've been betrayed. Voldemort knew that you were being moved tonight, and the only people who could have told him were directly involved in the plan. You might have been an imposter. So why are you checking me? panted Hagrid, still struggling to fit through the door. You're half-giant, said Lupin, looking up at Hagrid. The Polyjuice Potion is designed for human use only. None of the Order would have told Voldemort we were moving tonight, said Harry. The idea was dreadful to him. He could not believe it of any of them. Voldemort only caught up with me towards the end. He didn't know which one I was in the beginning. If he had been in on the plan, he'd have known from the start that I was the one with Hagrid. Voldemort caught up with you? said Lupin sharply. What happened? How did you escape? Harry explained briefly how the Death Eaters pursuing them had seemed to recognize him as the true Harry, how they had abandoned the chase, how they must have summoned Voldemort, who had appeared just before he and Hagrid had reached the sanctuary of Tonks' parents. They recognized you, but how? What had you done? I... Harry tried to remember. The whole journey seemed like a blur of panic and confusion. I saw I saw Stan Shunpike, you know, the bloke who was the conductor on the night bus. And I tried to disarm him instead of... Well, he doesn't know what he's doing, does he? He's being imperious. Lupin looked aghast. Harry, the time for disarming has passed. These people are trying to capture and kill you. At least stun if you're not prepared to kill. We were hundreds of feet up. Stan's not himself, and if I stunned him, he'd have fallen. He'd have died... The same as if I used a Vaticadavra. Expelliarmus saved me from Voldemort two years ago, Harry added defiantly. Lupin was reminding him of the sneering Hufflepuff Zachariah Smith, who had jeered at Harry for wanting to teach Dumbledore's army how to disarm. Yes, Harry, said Lupin with painful restraint, and a great number of Death Eaters witnessed that happening. Forgive me, but it was a very unusual move then, under imminent threat of death. Repeating it tonight in front of Death Eaters who either witnessed or heard about the first occasion was close to suicidal. So you think I should have killed Stan Shunpike, said Harry angrily. Of course not, said Lupin, but the Death Eaters, frankly most people, would have expected you to attack back. Expelliarmus is a useful spell, Harry, but the Death Eaters seem to think it is your signature move. I urge you to not let, it be, not let it become so. Lupin was making Harry feel idiotic, and yet there was a grain of defiance inside of him. I won't blast people out of the way just because they're there, said Harry. That's Voldemort's job. Lupin's retort was lost. Finally succeeding in squeezing through the door, Harry stagger Hagrid staggered to a chair and sat down. It collapsed beneath him. Ignoring his mingled oaths and apologies, Harry addressed Lupin once again. Will George be okay? All Lupin's frustration with Harry seemed to drain away at the question. 
I think so. Although there's no chance of replacing his ear, not when it's been cursed off. There was a scuffling from outside. Lupin dived for the back door. Harry leapt over Hagrid's legs and sprinted into the yard. Two figures had appeared in the yard, and as Harry ran towards them, he realized they were Hermione, now returning to her normal appearance, and Kingsley, both clutching a bent coat hanger. Hermione flung herself into Harry's arms, but Kingsley showed no pleasure at the sight of any of them. Over Hermione's shoulder, Harry saw him raise his wand and point at Lupin's chest. The last words Albus Dumbledore spoke to the pair of us. Harry is the best hope we have. Trust him, said Lupin calmly. Harry t uh, Kingsley turned his wand on Harry, but Lupin said, It's him, I've checked. All right, all right, said Kingsley, stowing his wand beneath his cloak. But somebody betrayed us. They knew. They knew it was tonight. So it seems, replied Lupin, but apparently they did not realize that there would be seven Harrys. Small comfort, snarled Kingsley. Who else is back? Only Harry, Hagrid, George, and me. Hermione stifled a little moan behind her hand. What happened to you? Lupin asked Kingsley. Followed by five, injured two, might have killed one, Kingsley reeled off. And we saw you know who as well. He joined the chase halfway through, but vanished pretty quickly. Remus, he can... Fly, supplied Harry. I saw him too. He came after Hagrid and me. So that's why he left. To follow you, said Kingsley. I couldn't understand why he'd vanished. But what made him change targets? Harry behaved a little too kindly to Stan Shunpike, said Lupin. Stan, repeated Hermione, but I thought he was an Azkaban. Kingsley let out a mirthless laugh. Hermione, there's obviously been a mass breakout which the Ministry has hushed up. Travers' hood fell off when I cursed him. He's supposed to be inside too. But what happened to you, Remus? Where's George? He lost an ear, said Lupin. Lost an repeated Hermione in a high voice. Snape's work, said Lupin. Snape? shouted Harry. You didn't say he lost his hood during the chase. Sectum Sempra was always a specialty of Snape's. I wish I could say I'd paid him back in kind, but it was all I could do to keep George on the broom after he was injured. He was losing so much blood. Silence fell between the four of them as they looked up at the sky. There was no sign of movement. The stars stared back, unblinking, indifferent, unobscured by flying friends. Where was Ron? Where were Fred and Mr. Weasley? Where Bill, Fleur, Tonks, Mad-Eye and Mundungus? Harry, give us a hand, called Hagrid hoarsely from the door. Inside, he was stuck again. Glad of something to do, Harry pulled him free, then headed through the empty kitchen and back into the sitting room, where Mrs. Weasley and Ginny were still tending to George. Mrs. Weasley had staunched the bleeding now, and by the lamplight, Harry saw a clean, gaping hole where George's ear had been. How is he? Mrs. Weasley looked around and said, I can't make it grow back, not when it's been removed by dark magic. But it could have been so much worse. He's alive. Yeah, said Harry, thank God. Did I hear someone else in the yard? Ginny asked. Hermione and Kingsley, said Harry. Thank goodness, Ginny whispered. They looked at each other. Harry wanted to hug her, hold on to her. He did not even much care that Mrs. Weasley was there, but before he could act on the impulse, there was a great crash from the kitchen. I'll prove who I am, Kingsley, after I've seen my son. Now back off if you know what's good for you. Harry had never heard Mr. Weasley shout like that before. He burst into the living room, his bald patch gleaming with sweat, his spectacles askew, Fred right behind him, both pale but uninjured. Arthur, sobbed Mrs. Weasley. Oh, thank goodness. How is he? Mr. Weasley dropped to his knees beside George for the first time since Harry had known him. Fred seemed to be lost for words. He gaped over the back of the sofa at his twin's wound as if he could not believe what he was seeing. 
Perhaps roused by the sound of Fred and their father's arrival, George stirred. How do you feel, Georgie? whispered Mrs. Weasley. George's finger groped for the side of his head. Saint-like, he murmured. What's wrong with him, croaked Fred, looking terrified. Is his mind affected? Saint-like, repeated George, opening his eyes, looking up at his brother. You see, I'm holy. Holy, Fred. Get it? Mrs. Weasley sobbed harder than ever. Color flooded Fred's pale face. Pathetic, he told George. Pathetic! With the whole wide world of irrelated humor before you, you go for holy? Ah, well, said George, grinning at his tear-soaked mother. You'll be able to tell us apart now anyways, Mom. He looked around. Hi, Harry. You are Harry, right? Yeah, I am, said Harry, moving closer to the sofa. Well, at least we got you back, okay, said George. Why aren't Ron and Bill huddled around my sickbed? They're not back yet, George, said Mrs. Weasley, and George's grin faded. Harry glanced at Ginny and motioned to her to accompany him back outside. As they walked through the kitchen, he said in a low voice, Ron and Tong should be back by now. They didn't have a long journey. Auntie Muriel's is not that far from here. Harry said nothing. He had been trying to keep fear at bay ever since reaching the burrow. But now it enveloped him. It seemed to crawl over his skin, throbbing in his chest, clogging his throat. As they walked down the back steps into the dark yard, Ginny took his hand. Kingsley was striding backwards and forwards, glancing up at the sky every time he turned around. Harry was reminded of Uncle Vernon pacing the living room a million years ago. Hagrid, Hermione, and Lupin stood shoulder to shoulder, gazing upward in silence. None of them looked around when Harry and Ginny joined their silent vigil. The minutes stretched into what might, have been, might as well have been years. The slightest breath of wind made them all jump and turn towards the whispering bush or tree in the hope that one of the missing order members might leap unscathed from its leaves. And then a broom materialized directly above them and streaked towards the ground. It's them, screamed Hermione. And Tonks landed in a long skid that sent earth and pebbles everywhere. Remus, Tonks cried as she staggered off the broom into Lupin's arms. His face was set and white. He seemed unable to speak. Ron tripped dazedly towards Hermione and Harry. You're okay, he mumbled before Hermione flew at him, hugging him tightly. I thought, I thought... I'm all right, said Ron, patting her on the back. I'm fine. Ron was great, said Tonks warmly, relinquishing her hold on Lupin. Wonderful. Stunned one of the Death Eaters straight to the head. And when you're aiming at rooming targets from a flying broom... You did? Said Hermione, gazing up at Ron with her arms still around his neck. Always a tone of surprise, he said, a little grumpily breaking free. Are we the last back? No, said Jenny. We're still waiting for Bill and Fleur and Mad-Eye Mundungus. I'm going to tell Mom and Dad you're okay, Ron. She ran back inside. So what kept you? What happened? Lupin almost sounded angry at Tonks. Bellatrix, said Tonks. She wanted me quite as much as she wants Harry, Remus. She tried very hard to kill me. I just wish I'd got her. I owe Bellatrix. But we definitely injured Rodolphus. Then we got to Ron's Auntie Muriel's and we missed our porky and she was fussing over us. A muscle was jumping in Lupin's jaw. He nodded but seemed unable to say anything else. So what happened to you lot? Tonks asked, returning to Harry, Hermione, and Kingsley. And they recounted the stories of their own journeys, but all the time, the continued absence of Bill, Fleur, Mad-Eye, and Mundungus seemed to lie upon them like a frost, its icy bite harder and harder to ignore. I'm going to have to get back to Downing Street. I should have been there an hour ago, said Kings finally. Kingsley finally, after a last sweeping gaze at the sky. Let me know when they're back. Lupin nodded. With a wave to the others, Kingsley walked away into the darkness towards the gate. 
Harry thought he heard the faintest pop as Kingsley disapparated just beyond the burrow's boundaries. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley came racing down the back steps, Ginny behind them. Both parents hugged Ron before turning to Lupin and Tonks. Thank you, said Mrs. Weasley, for our sons. Don't be silly, Molly, said Tonks at once. How's George? asked Lupin. What's wrong with him? piped up Ron. He's lost, but the end of Mrs. Weasley's sentence was drowned in a general outcry. A thestral had just soared into sight and landed a few feet from them. Bill and Fleur slid from its back, windswept, but unhurt. Bill! Thank God! Thank God! Mrs. Weasley ran forward, but the hug Bill bestowed upon her was perfunctory. Looking directly at his father, he said, Mad-Eye's dead. Nobody spoke. Nobody moved. Harry felt as though something inside him was falling, falling through the earth, leaving him forever. We saw it, said Bill. Fleur nodded, tear tracks glittering on her cheeks in the light from the kitchen window. It happened just after we broke out of the circle. Mad-Eye and Dung were close by us. They were heading north, too. Voldemort, he can fly, went straight for them. Dung panicked. I heard him cry out. Mad-Eye tried to stop him, but he disapparated, and Voldemort's curse hit Mad-Eye full in the face. He fell backward off his broom, and there was nothing we could do. Nothing. We had a dozen of them on our own tail. Bill's voice broke. Of course you couldn't have done anything, said Lupin. They all stood looking at each other. Harry could not quite comprehend it. Mad-Eye, dead. It could not be. Mad-Eye, so tough. So brave. The consummate survivor. At last, it seemed to dawn on everyone, though nobody said it, that there was no point in waiting in the yard anymore. And in silence, they followed Mr. and Mrs. Weasley back into the burrow and into the living room, where Fred and George were laughing together. What's wrong, said Fred, scanning their faces as they entered. What's happened? Who's... Mad-Eye, said Mr. Weasley. Dead. The twins' grins turned to grimaces of shock. Nobody seemed to know what to do. Tonks was crying silently into a handkerchief. She'd been close to Mad-Eye. Harry knew his favorite and his protege at the Ministry of Magic. Hagrid, who had sat down on the floor in the corner where he had the most space, was dabbing at his eyes with his tablecloth-sized handkerchief. Bill walked over to the sideboard and pulled out a bottle of fire whiskey and some glasses. Here, he said, and with a wave of his wand, he sent twelve full glasses soaring through the room and to each of them, holding the thirteen aloft. Mad-Eye. Mad-Eye, they all said and drank. Mad-Eye, echoed Hagrid a little late with a hiccup. The fire whiskey seared Harry's throat. It seemed to burn feeling back into him, dispelling the numbness and sense of unreality, firing him with something that was like courage. So Mundungus disappeared, said Lupin, who had drained his own in one glass. The atmosphere changed at once. Everybody looked tense. Watching Lupin, both wanting him to go on, it seemed to Harry, and slightly afraid of what they might hear. I know what you're thinking, said Bill, and I wondered that too, on the way back here, because they seemed to be expecting us, didn't they? But Mundungus can't have betrayed us. They didn't know where they didn't know that there would be seven Harrys. That confused them the moment we appeared. And in case he'd forgotten, it was Mundungus who suggested that little bit of skullduggery. Why wouldn't he have just told him the essential point? I think Dung panicked. It's as simple as that. He didn't want to come in the first place, but Mad-Eye made him. And you know who went straight for them. It was enough to make anyone panic. You know who acted exactly as Mad-Eye expected him to, sniffed Tonks. Mad-Eye said he'd expect the real Harry to be with the toughest, most skilled orders. He chased Mad-Eye first, 
and when Mundungus gave them away, he switched to Kingsley. Yes, and all of that is very good, snapped Fuhrer, but still it does not explain how they knew we were moving Harry tonight, does it? Somebody must have been careless. Somebody let slip the date to an outsider is the only explanation for them knowing the date, but not the old plan. And she glared around at all of them, tear-tracked, still etched into her beautiful face, silently daring any one of them to contradict her. Nobody did. The only sound to break the silence was that of Hagrid hiccuping from behind his handkerchief. Harry glanced at Hagrid, who had just risked his own life to save Harry's. Hagrid, whom he had loved, whom he trusted, who had once been tricked into giving Voldemort crucial information in exchange for a dragon's egg. No, said Harry aloud, and they all looked at him, surprised. The fire whiskey seemed to have amplified his voice. I mean, if somebody made a mistake, Harry went on, and let something slip, I know they didn't mean to do it. It's not their fault, he repeated, again and a little louder than he would have usually spoken. We've got to trust each other. I trust all of you. I don't think anyone in this room would ever sell me to Voldemort. More silence followed his words. They were all looking at him. Harry felt a little hot again and drank some more fire whisker for something to do. As he drank, he thought of Mad-Eye. Mad-Eye had always been scathing about Dumbledore's willingness to trust people. Well said, Harry, said Fred unexpectedly. Yeah. Ear, ear, said George with a half glance at Fred, the corner of whose mouth twitched. Lupin was wearing an odd expression as he looked at Harry. It was close to pitying. <clears throat> you think I'm a fool, demanded Harry. No, I think you're like James, said Lupin, who would have regarded it as the highest height of dishonor to mistrust his friends. Harry knew what Lupin was getting at, that his father had been betrayed by his friend Peter Pettigrew. He felt irrationally angry. He wanted to argue, but Lupin had turned away from him, set down his glass upon a side table, and addressed Bill. There is work to do. I can ask Kingsley whether... No, said Bill at once. I'll do it. I'll come. Where are you going, said Tonks and Fleur together. Mad-Eye's body. We need to recover it. Can it? began Mrs. Weasley with an appealing look at Bill. Wait, said Bill. Not unless you'd rather the Death Eaters took it. Nobody spoke. Lupin and Bill said goodbye and left. The rest of them now dropped into chairs, all except for Harry, who remained standing. The suddenness and completeness of death was with them like a presence. I've got to go too, said Harry. Ten pairs of startled eyes looked at him. Don't be silly, Harry, said Mrs. Weasley. What are you talking about? I can't stay here. He rubbed his forehead. It was prickling again. It had not hurt like this for more than a year. You're all in danger while I'm here. I don't want... But don't be silly, said Mrs. Weasley. The whole point of tonight was to get you here safely, and thank goodness it worked. And Fleaways agreed to get married here rather than in France. We arranged everything so we could all stay together and look after you. She did not understand. She was making him feel worse, not better. If Voldemort finds out I'm here... But why should he? asked Mrs. Weasley. There are a dozen places you might be now, Harry, said Mr. Weasley. He's got no way of knowing which safe house you're in. It's not me I'm worried for, said Harry. We know that, said Mr. Weasley quietly, but it would make our efforts tonight seem rather pointless if you left. You're not going anywhere, growled Hagrid. Blind me, Harry. After all we went through just to get you here. Yeah, what about my bleeding ear? said George, hoisting himself on his cushion. I know that. Mad I wouldn't want I no, Harry bellowed. He felt beleaguered and blackmailed. Did they think he did not know what they had done for him? Didn't they understand that it was for, for precisely this reason that he wanted to go now, before they had to suffer any more on his behalf? There was a long and awkward silence in which his scar continued to prickle and throb, which was broken at last by Mrs. Weasley. Where's Hedwig, Harry? 
she said coaxingly. We can put her up with Pigwidgeon and give her something to eat. His insides clenched like a fist. He could not tell her the truth. He drank the last of his fiery whiskey to avoid answering. Wait till it gets out that you did it again, Harry, said Hagrid. Escaped him. Fought him off while he was right on top of you. It wasn't me, said Harry flatly. It was my wand. My wand acted of its own accord. After a few moments, Hermione said gently, But that's impossible, Harry. You mean that you did magic without meaning to. You reacted instinctively. No, said Harry. The bike was falling. I couldn't have told you where Voldemort was, but my wand spun in my hand, found him, and shot a spell at him. And it wasn't even a spell I recognized. I've never made gold flames appear before. Often, said Mr. Weasley, when you're in a pressured situation, you can produce magic you never dreamed of. Small children often find before they're trained. It wasn't like that, said Harry through gritted teeth. His scar was burning. He felt angry and frustrated. He hated the idea that they were all imagining him having the power to match Voldemort's. No one said anything. He knew that they did not believe him. Now that he had come to think of it, he had never heard of a wand performing magic on its own before. But his uh, hairy scar seared with pain. It was all he could do not to moan aloud. Muttering about fresh air, he set his glass down and left the room. As he crossed a dark yard, the gray skeletal Thestral looked up, rustled its enormous bat-like wings, and then resumed its grazing. Harry stopped at the gate and into the garden, staring out at its overgrown plants, rubbing his pounding forehead and thinking of Dumbledore. Dumbledore would have believed him. He knew it. Dumbledore would have known how and why Harry's wand had acted independently because Dumbledore always had the answers. He had known about wands, had explained to Harry the strange connection that existed between his and Voldemort's. But Dumbledore, like Mad-Eye, like Sirius, like his parents, like his poor owl, all were gone where Harry would never talk to them again. He felt a burning in his throat that had nothing to do with the fire whiskey. And then out of nowhere, the pain in his scar peaked. As he clutched his forehead, he closed his eyes and a voice screamed inside his head. You told me the problem would be solved by using another's wand. And into his mind burst a vision of an emaciated old man lying in the rags upon a stone floor screaming a horrible drawn-out scream. A scream of unendurable agony. No! No, I beg you! I beg you! You lied to Lord Voldemort, Ollivander. I did not. I swear I did not. You sought to help Potter, to help him escape me. I swear I did not. I believed a different wand would work. Explain, then, what happened. Lucius's wand is destroyed. I cannot understand. The connection exists only between your two wands. Lies. Please, I beg you. And Harry saw the white hand raise its wand and felt Voldemort's surge of vicious anger. Saw the frail old man on the floor writhe in agony. Harry! It was over as quickly as it had come. Harry stood shaking in the darkness, clutching the gate into the garden, his heart racing, his scar still tingling. It was several moments before he realized Ron and Hermione were at his side. Harry, come back in the house, Hermione whispered. You aren't still thinking of leaving. Yeah, you've got to stay, mate, said Ron, thumping Harry on the back. Are you all right? Hermione asked close enough now to look into Harry's face. You look awful. Well, said Harry shakily, I probably look better than Ollivander. We had finished telling them what he had seen, Ron looked appalled, but Hermione downright terrified. But it was supposed to have stopped. Your scar, it wasn't supposed to do this anymore. You mustn't let that connection open up again. Dumbledore wanted you to close your mind. When he did not reply, she gripped his arm. Harry, he's taking over the ministry and the newspaper and half of the wizarding world. Do not let him inside your head, too. 
And that is the end of chapter five and where we will end the contents of the book today with you guys. A lot of big stuff there, kind of debriefing after getting back to the burrow. Some safely, some not so much. So Chase, give us your takeaways on that chapter and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> they always get their ass kicked. This is what I took away from that. Um, one thing we didn't mention was uh, Tonk's parents when Harry's there. Um, you know, he's kind of worried about Tonk's for a moment. And then they even mention, you know, don't worry about Tonk's, basically. Like, she's been through a lot. That kind of just plays into, I had an interesting facts like, way earlier this year that went into Tonk's, like, how she was really looked at as, like, the prodigy. She was, like, the golden child Aurora for Mad-Eye Moody. So, like, it, it's funny how even her parents are not even worried about the situation and they see you know Hagrid's like spread eagle in the yard and <laughs> Harry just got his ass like his his teeth his front teeth and ribs like broken and knocked out but um then you know uh, I mean it just shows like how the it, the big thing I think about this point here is the group is almost like about to mistrust everybody like not even know who to trust in this group and it really does this is where harry does step up here in a good way finally versus just throwing shit across the room and screaming at people he actually tells them like i i wouldn't think any of y'all would betray me even if it you know madungus fletcher doesn't really have the best reputation but even he like i wouldn't expect him to do that uh, so this is really a big point that stuck out to me that Harry Billy actually steps up in a really good way here. He does. Um, and then, of course, yes, of course, you know, uh, George has lost his ear, but he's still George. Like, he doesn't really care. I feel like George is basically like Deadpool. Like, he could be walking on, like, one limb and still make a joke out of it. He could be in, like, you know, a wheelchair with, like, all his limbs blown off and still, like, making a joke. Uh, with wizard weasels or whatever you call it weaseling wizard wheezes <laughs> exactly <laughs> he's got the weasel and the wizard and made a joke anyways but uh so we have all these like really big moments where they just got their ass kicked and it's almost like you know if you've been through like you know how you know people get at each other's throats because like it gets to the point like nothing's fucking going right for these people so they're like, someone had to fuck this up. Like, someone needs to be blamed. And it really takes Harry to step up in a big way here. And he even kind of comes back down to earth for a minute and stops and listens to Ron and Hermione. Like, you know, I can't, I can't go yet. I haven't confessed. <laughs> yeah, so he doesn't just go apparate off. Uh, he waits around for Ron and is really there for his friends. But still at the end here, uh, that big moment is you know he still has that major connection with Voldemort and um his scar is like really burning with those visions now and even worse is the guy that literally was known for like making wands like probably the worst guy one of the worst guys to probably like kidnap like your arsenal like that's like walking into like a military base like the bad guy basically takes over the military base it's like take your pick we're loaded now bitch it's game time <laughs> he's like torturing all of Ander. 
Like, can you say, like, the score right now <laughs> is the bad guys, like, 10, the good guys, nothing. <laughs> like, they're getting their ass kicked. They're down 21 zip right now, and it's the first quarter. Like, we're in the fourth quarter of the season, <laughs> but this is the first game of the season right now, and you're getting your ass kicked in the first quarter is what's going on. Uh, so, yeah, we got a, we got a long way to go, and it's going to – it's going to take some intellectual thinking, some calming down, just like Harry did. Um, and, and you know, I you can definitely tell that Harry, Ron, and Hermione, uh, they got their work cut out for them and what they're starting to prepare for that we'll get into next week. And what about you, man? What do you think about, about uh, this big chapter here? Uh, the big thing, the first one, and he kind of missed it in the whole takeaway, but Mad-Eye Moody's <laughs> dead, man. Mad-Eye Moody's gone. Oh, yeah, fuck <laughs> like, Mad-Eye Moody. Like, <laughs> like, dude, like, this I is the thing, too. I never give a shit about him. Mad-Eye Moody's your guy, too, man. But, I'll let you take that. That's that. <laughs> Jay Nelly and but, I always joke about this. Like, I'm, like it'll be like Mad-Eye Moody, like this major important character, and I'm like, I really didn't give a fuck about what <laughs> Mad Eye Moody had to say. <laughs> yeah, the reason be like Hedwig died, and I'm like, no, Hedwig, he was the man. Meanwhile, like probably one of the greatest Aurors of all time, like is pronounced dead. I'm like, whatever, dude. Like who gives a shit? We got like five more. <laughs> we got like five more over here. <laughs> You're good, man. Take it. No good call. That I will say that's probably the biggest point. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest main point it's called fallen warrior for instance of this entire chapter so yeah you got me on that one man. that was one point that was like 21 points josh zero points chase on that one yeah keep taking it man that's good stuff so yeah i mean well obviously now that the fun part i get to do for all of you guys who are watching on youtube and not seeing it if you're just listening on regular podcasts i have mad eye moody here as the last lone but funko pop next to harry uh, and now he's officially dead, been killed, knocked off the broom. So I'm going to grab him, throw him off to the side. We've got no more <laughs> Mad-Eye Moody. Harry is taking center stage with me here. I'm stuck with the chosen one as the last one standing over here. <laughs> but I'll go ahead and continue man. on with some of the takeaways with the rest of this chapter. Um, the fact that Snape is the one that attacked George with that Sectumisempra curse that we heard about last book. So, like, Snape actually hurt one of the order like kind of like, cut off fred's ear like that's fucked up man like you're attacking children now like i wouldn't say children because like fred's probably 18 at this point because he's two years ahead of harry harry has not quite turned 17 yet so yeah george is 18 years old but still like this grown adult is attacking an 18 year old cuts his ear off thought that was fucked up um yeah the big takeaway too is like who let slip that they were moving harry tonight that was a whole ordeal that we will find out later uh, Voldemort, I thought this was cool. We just talked about the death of Mad-Eye Moody, but I thought it was very cool that Voldemort personally is the one that killed Mad-Eye Moody. It wasn't any of the Death Eaters. Yeah. It was a big head honcho himself that took out Mad-Eye Moody. Because, Matt, like you said, him being one of the... He's, he's a little long in the tooth, old, and maybe not as reactive as he once was, but he had enough of Voldemort's respect for Voldemort to go after him personally. So that thought that was pretty badass. Another bad thing about Mad-Eye being gone is that, like, he's the one that always made the plans and thought of everything, you know? Can't use this yeah. plan because this is what they're going to do. Like, he was the one putting the chess pieces. And, like, you'll even see next week about some of the things they did to an old house that we're going to go and visit that I'll, we'll talk about not too long from now. So, 
Like, Matt, I, like, he's a big integral part of it, not just because he's skilled as an order, but he always does the thinking and the planning for the orders. Now, it's like, damn, who, who's not, the next person is going to take that role? So I thought that was pretty big. Uh, then after Voldemort, after Voldemort went for Mad Eye, he went for Kingsley because, like, just like Mad Eye's plans are kind of they, he knows what he's talking about because he's like, what did Tonks say? He behaved just as uh, Mad Eye thought Voldemort was going to behave. Went after uh, Mad Eye first, then went after Kingsley second because they're the two most skilled and accomplished orders. So like, it was really in- interesting that they thought that they would be protecting the real Harry. Uh, going on and mentioning from Tonks, good segue into this part. This is where we kind of get that full circle moment. Remember when Voldemort back in chapter one, Dark Lord Ascending, said like like uh, told Bellatrix like you're gonna have your chance to kill Denise, and like that's why Tonks is like Bellatrix was aggressively trying to kill me. Like she was like she really wanted to kill me, man. Like so I used to, like I wish I got her. I owe her one, but that's why it took Tonks so long to get back because like she was in a fierce duel in the sky with Bellatrix who wanted to kill her because that's what the Dark Lord wanted. She thinks that she's gonna gain favor with Voldemort. Remember they all laughed at her when when all the Death Eaters were laughing. We're like, yeah, your family is married to a, one of the werewolves of the Order. How what do you think about that? Like making her feel dumb and silly and stupid. So she wanted to get back at them and kill Tonks. So that was a big takeaway there. And then as you said. Well, actually, first, there's one more before you talked about Ollivander. But Lupin and Bill go to collect Mad-Eye's body. And that's a big foreshadow, especially when we think about what Mad-Eye's body, or at least part of it, is going to be used for here not too long from now. So, them going to find Mad-Eye's body is a bit of a foreshadow that is going to take us to another spot. And then the last takeaway that I have is, yeah, Voldemort has Ollivander and is torturing him for his mistake about using a different wand. So, now we know why Voldemort thought that taking Lucius's wand would be the answer. When he's like, I understand things now that I didn't understand before. Well, do you? Because you don't, because that <laughs> didn't work either. So I wouldn't say that the score is 21 Death Eaters, zero order, because at the end of the day, the order did what they needed to do. They got Harry to safety, yeah. and they still don't figure, they can't figure out how the heck to kill, like, Voldemort can't figure out how the hell to kill Harry. He's like, what's going on? Like, you told me this other wand was gonna work. I tried to use the other wand. That wand got destroyed. What like 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 he's he's back not at square one but he's set back now thinking he knew what he had to do now he doesn't know again and now he's got to torture more information on different people and that will come up later on so it's like they they maybe like the good guys may be behind but they they definitely got some points on the board they got they got a couple points yeah. on the board so that's my last takeaway of that and then that kind of kind of puts us into the potential plot holes and stuff that we found so with that man what kind of plot holes did you find what were some things he has some questions on and let's get into that portion yeah uh real quick by the way what's up with mad eye always getting hit in the face yeah i don't know <laughs> like every curse i obviously he was never taught to defend his facial area just like a boxer they always tell you keep one fist up apparently that's the one thing he could never learn because he got his nose shot off during the first wizarding war and now, you know, he met his maker because he couldn't learn from previous mistakes. But, um, plot holes. <laughs> Where were we? Uh, I mean, you kind of answered this one before. My really big, um, one of my plot holes was, like, as far as, you know, why, just, like, why did they, I guess because it was cool, maybe. And this is just me thinking out of the box. It's not really a plot hole. But, like, why Lupin and Tonks chose to um take uh, was it lupin that chose well uh, sorry lupin and george chose to take a thestral like out of nowhere so i guess 
I, I guess because it's cool in that emotional scene where like Harry walked out, looked up, and there was a Thestral there. So you had that whole full circle foreshadow of he's seen death again. Well, there's reasons. Dead. Yeah, there's definitely reasons why they took it because not everyone was comfortable on broomsticks. So there was actually two Thestrals. One held Lupin and George, and the other one held Fleur yeah. and Bill. So remember, because they, they, I remember Fleur wasn't comfortable on brooms, and like, um, like they remember Hermione wasn't that comfortable on brooms either. So they actually did take uh, two Thestrals, not just one. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, no, it was, it was then, sorry, it was Kingsley and Hermione that were on the second Thestral, not not George and, and Lupin. It was Kingsley and Hermione on the first Thestral, and then it was um, uh, the other the other two that I mentioned on the on the first one. There, yeah. so. There was there was two thestrals because they needed yeah. different ways to transport and all that so yeah. But I I could buy it. I was like all right. I thought they only hung around Luna, <laughs> but like all right. I I can buy it. I'm going with the flow. The other one I really had um a problem with. I didn't really have a big problem with it, but just like you said, like he didn't clean out his trunk. Like I actually was thinking something else with the china mug earlier where you told me but even like the potter stinks badge like i never recall him taking that home in the goblet of fire yeah that was did he weird. take it home <laughs> i don't recall him wearing one yeah <laughs> did he like wear one i thought he was no. just looking at him and they were making fun of it, it was mainly malfoys so like what's he doing with like crab and goyle and malfoy all the uh uh, all the Weasley, I'm sure he's got a Weasley is our king badge in there somewhere. <laughs> like, like, why doesn't he ever clean anything? I guess it goes back to the whole point of like, in the earlier books, like we've never seen him clean anything, but I don't know why that would be there, but I was okay with it. Like I accepted it because my boy Cedric Diggory, you know, gets his like, like his like, you know, honorable mention i would say like two books later for no reason really but you still get the full circle moment even though it's very full circle goblet of fire so like i don't really know why you had to bring him up but i'm okay with it because i'm a cedric diggory guy but that's the only other one i had what about you man i've got three actually and like honestly two of the three are really really important to the storyline like uh, then my first one here, this is probably the biggest one because it doesn't make any sense. I'm hoping maybe someone will be able to explain it to me. But on page eight is kind of like where I kind of first noticed this and thought about it when like where Voldemort um, took Lucius's wand and Lucius tried to grab for Voldemort's wand because of the connection between Voldemort and Harry's wand. How the hell does Voldemort reclaim his original wand from when he went to the Potters at the height of his first reign? Because if we go by what we learned so far from the books, when Voldemort's curse rebounded upon him after his failed attempt to kill Harry, Voldemort himself said he was ripped from his body, less than a spirit, less than the meanest ghost. But still, he was alive. So how did his wand come back into his possession? Because in Sorcerer's Stone, Ollivander tells Harry, I remember every wand I've ever sold, Mr. Potter, every single wand. It so happens that the phoenix, whose tail is in your wand, gave another feather, just one other. It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when its brother, why, its brother gave you that scar. Then obviously in Goblet of Fire, their wand's connected, and Dumbledore explains it on page 697 of Goblet of Fire when Sirius asks, so what happens when a wand meets its brother? 
and Dumbledore replies they will not work properly against each other. If, however, the owners of the wands are forced to do battle, a very rare effect will take place. One of the wands will force the other to regurgitate spells it has performed in reverse. The most recent first, and then those which preceded it. And that's exactly what happened and how we saw Harry's parents emerge from Voldemort's wand, meaning that it is exactly the same wand that he used in the very beginning. It's not like Voldemort got another wand, so it's the very same one because he killed Harry with his parents with that wand. So once if, if he was uh, ripped from his body after he attempted to kill Harry, how the hell did Voldemort get his wand back? Like, they're, like who, like, the someone come in and grab it and take it, but who would have? Because like, when we learn later on in this book alone, I don't want to get any spoilers away, we know who the first person to go to the wreckage of Harry's yeah. parents' house was once it happened. And that person would not have taken the wand and given to Voldemort. That's all I'll say about yeah, that. Yeah, most definitely meaning not. How, meaning how the hell did Voldemort get his original wand back? I don't know. Like, like <laughs> where in the no world? Like, if he's ripped... Yeah. Hundred percent. If he's ripped no from his body, if he doesn't have through. a spirit, if he's a ghost, if he's less than a ghost, he's got nothing to hold anything with. Remember, he had to take the back of Quirrell's head, like as a ghastly. You know, if you guys remember Pokemon, like that Pokemon ghastly, like that little shrouded cloud. Like, <laughs> who the hell got Voldemort his own original wand back? Because we know it's not a different wand because of the connection in Goblet of Fire that they held against each other. So we know it's his actual wand, and we know like he got ripped from his body. So where the hell did Voldemort get his wand back from? Who gave it to him? How did he retrieve it? I don't know. I don't think that was ever mentioned. <laughs> that's a great point because I that's something I've even overlooked overlooked for a while. Like I don't know if Peter Pettigrew did some crawling crawling around in there after the wreckage in his little little scabbers form and put it in his mouth. And then but think about that. It's almost like in Goblet of Fire. Like, did he pull a, a, a ray and pull that out of his ass? Like, where did that wand come from? That's an excellent point. And I almost feel like in the film, like, he, like, just pulls it out of his sleeve or something when he comes out of the, like, cauldron. <laughs> like, I feel like it just came out of his sleeve or something. If you guys know, leave it in the comments. Send us an email. Uh, let us know. Put it on Facebook. Uh, reach out to us on Instagram. That's a gr excellent question because I feel like you're right. Like it's almost like something that's just never, like we just chose to omit, and it's like literally you take that part out. Harry could be dead right now. Do you realize yeah. that? There wouldn't have been <laughs> so much for getting to year seven. <laughs> there wasn't no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely. And like, I had to pick up Cedric's wand. And I, I'm an owner of Cedric's wand, and I'm telling you, I wouldn't have been able to withstand it. <laughs> and that's <laughs> so the other thing, know, too. Man. To answer your point, point about Peter Pettigrew, remember what happened like when Peter grew, like Pettigrew was confronted by Sirius and he blew up his finger behind his back and turned into the rat? Like, they all thought Voldemort was gone for good. Even the Malfoys, like, were, like, like, they, like. So what I'm saying is, like, Peter Pettigrew wouldn't have been brave enough or like think Voldemort was ever coming back. Because what did he do? He lived with Ron yes. as Scabbers for three years. Exactly. Where was him as a rat gonna hold a wand? Where was he gonna put it? <laughs> where, where was Peter Pettigrew gonna hide the most dark wizard's wand of all time? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't understand how he's the one that sees it. And he's not even the one that goes to the Potter's house first. Like, there's someone else at the end of the book. Can't give it away. 
that goes to the Potters to see the dead parents and Harry. So I just don't know where in the world, you know, if, if Voldemort himself can't grab it with his hands because he's now a mean-spirited, like, less than a ghost, it had to go somewhere. Like, I don't think people are just going to let that lie around because then after the person <laughs> who goes there, then, ha- then Hagrid comes. Hagrid comes and picks up Harry. So I'm just saying, like, someone had to have gotten that wand or, like, and, and like who would have done it and how could it have gotten it back I mean, to Voldemort's possession? Nagini? Maybe? <laughs> maybe it was Nagini? Maybe. That's I guess. the only option. <laughs> Literally the only option. But, like, option. what's she going to do? Like, Put it in her jaws and slither around with it, like, like I don't know. <laughs> like, like, I'm trying to dude, think of every opportunity here, and I can't think of one that even makes remotely any sense. And you're right, yeah. What you gonna do? Eat the damn thing and then regurgitate it? <laughs> I mean, she's eating people whole, so I guess she could eat the wand. But I, it doesn't make any sense to me. And it makes it's so funny because it's almost like it's just like. Because it's such an action-packed moment in Goblet of Fire, we just, like, accept it. Like, we just didn't even think about it. Like, he just has it already. When he was giving his whole speech to the Death Eaters. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think in the movie, if I recall correctly, I might not be recalling this correctly because I hated the movie. I mean, I liked the movie when I was a child. I think it's a difference when I was a child. But I swear in the movie, I'll have to go back and rewatch it. I think he, like, pulls it out from his sleeve or something. Which, I like, remember in the film, like, the robes are totally different than the book. Like, they just, like, evaporate on him. <laughs> like, I feel like I, the I do one, remember like, just, like, evaporated. Uh, like, uh, what I would call... It apparated, <laughs> the wand apparated itself out of thin air into his I, fucking hand. <laughs> I, I will say in the uh, in the book no though, yeah, in the book it's Wormtail that gives him. He's like my wand, Wormtail, and Wormtail gives him the okay, wand. Okay, that's right. Okay, so, so I but like, was but even be, but even before that, because remember he killed Frank with his own wand when he turned around in the chair in the beginning, got fired and said, "If I could never," was when he was still like that weird reptile half child thing. So, like, yeah. where the hell did he get this wand, man? Who the hell had the wand? How did he get it back? I don't know. <laughs> like, Somehow it's... Wormtail got the damn wand. <laughs> I don't know. That's the thing, I... though. But he spent his whole life, like, as a rat. And, like, you know, he, <laughs> and he thought, like, he, he's not a brave person. So there's no way he would just go there, take the wand, and keep it in secret. Like, I think the Dark Lord's coming back. Like, no, he doesn't want to ever be found again. And then when he, when he learned, like, he could help him when... Because that's we no one knew there was any part of Voldemort that still remained outside of Dumbledore when we get into Sorcerer's Stone. But then we like see what happens to Sorcerer's Stone, then Chamber of Secrets, and remember Scabbers is with them in Hogwarts during this whole time. So then at that point he can start thinking, okay, Voldemort's literally like is out there, but I'm too scared to return to him. But oh, now my secrets found out in Prison of Azkaban. Now my old friends are trying to kill me. I gotta go back to Voldemort for protection. But like there'd be no reason for him to have the wand up until that point. Like there would be like. And that's the thing, too. We're just assuming it was Peter who went to that house, but, like, that was never stated. On top of that, like, there was other people who got there before anyone, and you would think they're just going to leave Voldemort's wand just chilling there in the wreckage? Like, no. <laughs> like, yeah. I, don't... I got no answers. I, yeah. I'm 100% on board with that. <laughs> 100% on board with you. Very weird. Very weird. This, this next one is a little bit of a pothole, too, just... In terms of like what we learned from the first chapter of when Voldemort tells everyone like no Harry Potter's mine I must be the one to kill him, but if we think about it page fifty seven right as soon as they fly out of the way it says 
More killing curses flew past Harry's head from two remaining Death Eaters' wands. They were aiming for Hagrid. Who would be that careless to potentially hit Harry with killing curses if Voldemort's like, hey, we, I need to take Harry alive, I need to be the one to kill Harry. But apparently these, <laughs> these Death Eaters are just going to fly killing curses and hey, if they hit Harry, oops, my bad, Voldemort. No, you wanted him for yourself, but I just decided to do the job for you. thought that was a bit weird, but not even just that part. On page 60, I'll read the third to last paragraph. This is another part, too. Like, uh, The scar on his forehead burned like fire. As a Death Eater appeared on the side of the bike, two killing curses missed Harry by millimeters, cast from behind. So again, like these people are missing Harry with killing curses. Like, like, you, like They literally told you at the beginning, Voldemort said, Hey, Harry Potter's mine. I need to be the one to kill him. But apparently we're just flying around killing curses like they're candy and like hoping like, hey, well, maybe this isn't the real Harry. Maybe we'll just knock off some more of the order. Like you think that Voldemort will let them be that careless? There's no way, especially something as important as Harry Potter. Uh, It just, I just thought that was interesting. Do you agree with me there? Is there something that you want to add to that that I might be overlooking? Like, or is that fucked up? Am I right? Oh, no, I agree with you 100% because I was thinking the same thing to myself. I just ignored it. Like, maybe I just, like, I was over-exaggerating how many killing curses I heard. But, no, that's an exact point. Like, he, not to mention, Snape even told him in the last book. Like, he's the Dark Lords. Like, don't touch him. Don't fucking touch him. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, literally every... What is up with this? It's like no one has ever heard a dis- heard of a disarming spell before or any of that. It's like they've never been to Hogwarts before in their life. It's like they've never been to wizarding school because every time I turn around, every spell that the only spell they knew is killing curse. Like I feel like all the bad guys do now is shoot fucking killing curses. Like I I've had enough of the killing curse the whole idea was there were three unforgivable curses and i've had a damn enough of the the unforgivable curses being used why are they even unforgivable anymore apparently everyone gets to do them and no one's no one has any consequences if you're a death eater you're part of the ministry now so we can just fly around killing curses and no one gives a fuck <laughs> no one can i thought you were sent to azkaban for doing one of those right but apparently no one gets sent to fucking azkaban anymore i i don't know man i i on board 100 percent on that yeah, I guess to answer that, like, because the ministry is now under the Voldemort's control and the breakout have happened in Azkaban, so, like, I guess they're not going to be there, but, like, it doesn't make any difference because you're right, like, pious thickness was under the Imperious curse. Like, Voldemort's torturing Ollivander with a Cruciatus curse. All it is is the three unforgivable curses, really. Like, there was, like, what, one other spell that the Death Eater used, like, uh, <laughs> Dolohov back in the fight at the ministry when he had his own spell, that X-slashing thing he hit with Hermione. That's, like, the only yeah, other like spell that spell. I've seen that's not an unforgivable curse. All the rest of them, it's like, Death Eater's like, all right, we're just going right for it, baby. <laughs> we're going right for the end. So, anyways, no, like, they literally, me. like, that was a little bit... <laughs> yeah, right? But, like, they, they were being so careless when it came to, like, potentially hitting Harry. Like, especially when they don't know who the real one is. Like, I don't understand why they would just say that multiple times. Like, in back-to-back, like, pages I just read of, like, Killing Curses missing Harry by inches. Like, you know, it just makes no sense how that Voldemort was very specific. And like you said, Snape said in the previous book, leave Harry. Like, he's the Dark Lords. And then Voldemort's like, I've got to be the one to kill him. <laughs> But apparently it's totally cool for them to just throw killing curses all over the place. So anyways, I'll go to my third and final one that I found in this area. And I talked to you a little bit about this between pages 70 and 71. 
Professor Lupin tells Harry off for using Expelliarmus because that was the identifying act that helped the Death Eaters recognize the true Harry. But on page 56, he uses Stupefy. Second paragraph on page 57 states, Harry responded with further stunning spells. Page 58, he uses with Guardian Leviosa to keep the sidecar afloat. Page 58 again, right below that, Harry uses Impedimenta. Page 59, he uses Confringo to blow up the sidecar. Page 59, the fifth paragraph, states Harry sent stunning spell after stunning spell back at the pursuers, barely holding them off. All of those he was doing before using Expelliarmus one time. I feel like that was a decent variety of spells. They make it sound like that was his go-to the moment like the Death Eaters appeared, and it was not. Like, even after he used this singular Expelliarmus on page 60, he goes right back to using stunning spells. In the last paragraph on page 60 states, Harry sent stunning spells flying at random into the Whirling Knight. Like, they made it sound as if, like, he was only using Expelliarmus. Like, Lumen's like, you can't make that your signature move. He used a variety of different spells, used Expelliarmus once, and apparently, oh, that's him. That's gotta be the real one. He used one weird spell. It's gotta be him. I just found that very, very unlikely that with the variety of spells that he was using, he uses a different one in different ways. Like I said, Stunning Spell, Wingardium Leviosa, Impedimenta, Confringo, finally Expelliarmus. He used five different spells. And he uses Expelliarmus once, and like, oh, that's gotta be Harry. No other wizard could possibly know the disarming spell. That's gotta be the real Harry. It's gotta be it. <laughs> like, I just don't know, man, how that they try to sell that to me that that was his signature move. It'd be different if that's all he was doing the whole time is Expelliarmus after Expelliarmus, but he used Expelliarmus once. One time. And that was enough for them to go ahead and say, yep, that's the real Harry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, no, when I was doing that, I was saying once. So I was reiterating what you were yeah. saying. But think of this. What if, like, Kingsley Shacklebolt or someone just casted Expelliarmus? So they instantly think that's them. What if they, like, let's say they go by what was actually intended, not to kill Harry. But they think, like, Kingsley Shacklebolt is Harry because he uses Expelliarmus or any other powerful aurora. So then they try to take him in. Well, then that Aurora, if he's actually fucking good, could take that whole shit down from the inside. Like, you just instantly wind up... Let's say we jump some chapters ahead of nine, ahead of now. You wound up in the Malfoy Manor, and you just take that shit down from the inside. <laughs> the problem is... Is the only problem is is that there were protectors and then there were hairy doubles and all the strong yeah. roars were actually the protectors, meaning they wouldn't okay. have yeah, they wouldn't have recognized true. Kingsley as a Harry because he wasn't polyjuice potioned like the rest of them. So that's the only thing wrong with what you're saying there is like they saved the strong orders for being the protectors of the other people who were hairy imposters. So like they yeah. wouldn't have been able to be like, oh, then that's Kingsley the might be hairy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, good call. You're right. right. You're yeah. right. Then that's a fucking order flaw, then. Maybe that's Mad-Eye Moody's fucking problem. He's like Tyrion Lannister, not realizing he should have mixed up the groupies a little bit. Mixed up the homies. Maybe we should mixed put a little Kingsley in there. Maybe we should have put a little Lupin in there. Well, no, fuck. Lupin's fucked it up forever. <laughs> He's been fucking things up from the beginning. All he fucking knows is grindy lows. Apparently... Apparently all we got is grindylows and demigorgons or whatever the fuck those demi things are. <laughs> all he knows is magical creatures now and patronuses. Go send him out to Azkaban. Keep his ass there to make sure 
people actually get sent there for using killing curses all the fucking time. Maybe no one will get out of there. Maybe Igor Kakarov wouldn't be dead right now. Maybe Igor Kakarov wouldn't be fucking dead. Maybe that's a little foreshadowing to next episode. That's a little foreshadowing to next episode for someone that comes out of nowhere that I thought was stupid as fuck. <laughs> that was stupid as shit. Anyways, point being, I would have mixed it up a little bit. Maybe put some of my more power up. Maybe Nymphadora Tonks. She was the golden child if she was there. Maybe if Lupin was there, it wouldn't have mattered because George still got his ear blown off. I don't know, man. I don't know. I wasn't the Mad-Eye Moody prodigy that got to make the plan. So this is what we got. You know, at least they came out okay. That's all I can say. At least they came out okay because we've definitely seen it worse like we saw last book and the book before that where they keep having to have someone bail their ass out. At least they did it on their own <laughs> this time is all I got to say. Awesome. Well, I think that does it for my plot holes. We'll get into our interesting fact now. I'll let you go ahead and, and talk about your interesting fact, what you have for this episode. I'll do mine and we'll close up for the day and, and go from there, man. Yeah, man. My interesting fact is short and sweet. It's actually, uh, so let me go ahead and pull this up here. It's actually on Charity Charity Burbage. How do you say her name? The Burbag. That you just said it. <laughs> the bitch that no. died. Charity <laughs> Burbage. Mm -hmm. Charity Burbage. Muggle studies and all that. So just a little bit about her because she's not as one of the most known teachers at Hogwarts. Um, but she was born in the 1980s. No exact date was known. She was born in Great Britain. She actually is known to produce a Patronus, but... It's only been known as non-corporeal. No one knows exactly what her Patronus is. Um, she started her career at Hogwarts actually in 1993. So I thought that was interesting because we really haven't heard much about her. And that's when we got really introduced into like Professor Trelawney. Um, she took the position, it said, after an unknown male professor resigned. She did excel in the newts and owls in muggle studies which i didn't even know that was a subject so i thought that was impressive um and she took muggle music and muggle arts as her electives and actually in the calamity video game we talked about they came out with almost like that pokemon snap harry potter thing like two years ago that you can do on your phone uh she is there mentioned in passing on a chocolate frog card that you can get if you earn an accomplishment so that was pretty interesting um which she's not alive but she's she's mentioned in passing so she got a little bit of moments there i mean she she doesn't stick around for too long but her memories will live on <laughs> memories make us go back there and with that i'll turn it over to you jay nelly and i'll let you close us out man so my interesting fact, it's very similar to yours in terms of being short and sweet, but mine, we've heard about it a lot. It's finally time for me to tackle it head on and see what I can find out about it. But I chose my interesting fact to be the trace, like what that is and like how it's awesome. implemented and all of that. So uh, there's actually not terribly too much information about it and there's conflicting uh, reports. So I'm going to tell you what I do have. Uh, first off, it's a charm. And its effect is it detects magical activity around underage witches and wizards, which we kind of already knew, right? So 
What it does, it allows the ministry to know of magic cast in the vicinity of wizards and witches who are under 17 years of age. And when any magical activity was performed in the vicinity of the underage individual, the improper use of magic office in the ministry was alerted to the spell that was used and the location of the caster and of the time that it was cast. So that charm actually allows the ministry to track underage magic, which was banned under the decree of reasonable restriction of underage sorcery. But obviously the trace automatically breaks when a wizard or witch turns 17. Now, it is unknown how a witch or wizard was imbued with the trace, but it appeared to be universal with magical children. It did not need to be removed, but broke automatically upon reaching adulthood, and it is speculated that the trace was placed on a magical child when they entered the Hogwarts Express, thus the reason it was used instead of a more efficient way of travel. The theory, however, does not explain how the trace was cast on people who did not attend Hogwarts since parents could elect that their children receive magical education at home. So that's why, like, and it's weird because like, if you think about it, like Merope and Morphine Gaunt, like they learned right. like, magic or, like, at home. So the whole thing was, um, the thing is, is between that, why it doesn't make sense. Cause they thought that it was actually put on the Hogwarts Express train itself. Like, that, like when you enter it for the first time, boom, you're hit with a trace. But that conflicting report being, well, what about the people who were homeschooled as magical children? So we still don't really know where it was implemented, who thought of it, or where it originated. All we do know is kind of what's stated in the books is that it, it tracks magical activity performed around underage wizards. It's banned, like, 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 obviously spells under the age of 17 are banned by the re reasonable restriction for underage wizardry. It also, in the vicinity of muggles, it helps them detect where and what time. And the only thing that really I learned new is that the whole Hogwarts Express thing. I never knew that before, that people, that the thought behind it was once you walked on the Hogwarts Express, that's when the trace hit you. So yeah. that's why, yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. a little something new that I learned about that, but it's still undetermined. It's still not concrete solid fact it is not something that has as of today been confirmed so that is my interesting fact regarding the trace today <laughs> awesome dude that's a really cool one because i didn't know that either about the hogwarts express that that's where it really you know that's when your trace really uh, latches onto you i guess i would say so that's when they really take notice that, that's well, that, really that's cool if, man that was that's great if stuff. that's true though that's the problem is because for the people who are homeschooled it's like how do they know for the people who never got on the Hogwarts? That's that's where the conflicting reports come in. But if it was mm -hmm. universal, that would be really cool. Um, yeah. For the Hogwarts special, like that would be kind of interesting. So, but yeah, no man, that that's my interesting fact for that one, and that you know kind of ties us up for what we're gonna cover today, man. So I don't know, did you want to kind of put any imparting last words upon this episode before we get out of here today? Yeah, I guess something cool. So I'll post it on our website. I'm working on getting our website uh, up to date. You know, uh, we give you so much content here. We want to make sure all the content's there first and then keep following along. But I put it on my Instagram and our Instagram page. You probably saw it. Uh, so remember in Order of the Phoenix, one of my interesting facts was if you call the telephone at Universal Studios, you'll get a message from the Ministry of Magic. I went there a couple weeks ago and I actually put it on my Instagram story. I did it. And what was funny was I had all these people in line that were in front of me, like trying to like actually call somebody on the phone or was trying to figure out what was going on with it. 
and they really couldn't figure out like what to do with the phone and then i just like ah uh, like a, a harry potter expert expert just put that bad boy in and it's cool they say uh, this is the ministry of magic uh seeing if you wanted to accept your mission and you hit like number one and then it turns the dial and they say blah blah blah. this is the ministry of magic please grab your badges have a magical day <laughs> so it was just a cool moment because uh, I wanted to make sure, you know, I always want to be 100% on everything we say here. So, and how do you uh, determine whether it's 100%? You go try it yourself and put it on camera. <laughs> so I did that. But uh, yeah, man, it's, I'm just excited for this ride. This book um, is so action packed. Uh, there's a reason we saved this arc for last and um, it, we got nine awesome episodes we're going to be doing on this bad boy here and it um it will not disappoint it's going to be um definitely one for the books uh as i said earlier you know it's taken all this time <laughs> and i think y'all know that uh you know how iconic that phrase is but it even relates to us here at factor fantasy because all the hard work that goes in y'all make it worth it just all the reviews all the follows we've been on podbean now for it's literally been since september which is absolutely phenomenal uh still on there and uh just everything y'all do for us so it really just means a lot to us i always say you know cast a spell on that subscribe button like and subscribe we do see the reviews you write so like i said leave us a review um, reach out to us if you ever have questions, but follow us on Facebook, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Follow us on our Instagram. You can follow us on our personal pages. We're not going to bite. We're not looping. The full moon's not out. We live in Florida. Um, but that's RBROW129. You can follow Jay Nelly. Follow us at Official Ridiculous Patronus. Uh, any of those, get us wherever you get your podcast. Uh, that's what we're here for. But it's going to be. Um, this Hogwarts train is on the up and up, almost at that peak, and we're about to fly it off the rails in fifth gear here in the fourth quarter. And with that, I'll let you close us out, Jay Nelly. Sounds like a plan, guys. Just to echo Chase's sentiments, thank you. Uh, you know, being part of the ride from the very beginning, back in uh, January of 2020 when Chase and I started this, uh, you know, we decided to take season one. Uh, longer than we anticipated because we wanted to make sure that we got everything out there and this is this is the everything this last book the next nine episodes this one and the following nine episodes are the culmination of the hard work that everyone's kind of put in us as people who create the show you as listeners who have been stuck in with us since day one so with that being said we'll say goodbye for this week you'll catch us next week because you know today this has been another ridiculous production chase and josh Factor Fantasy. Signing, Signing off. off.